Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new far-fetched fables everyone has a story in the district of wonders come and find yours This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 368. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We launched this show on the very last day of 2014. You might not hear it for another couple of years. That's the, that's the kind of beauty of podcasts and the kind of the neat time travel quirk that is. But it is now... The 31st of December, it's a Wednesday, 2014, it's in the morning time there, and I'm getting ready for the big, the big session tonight. Well, we'll go around to friends and we're having a curry. So, how is everyone? I hope everyone, like I say, is fine and dandy. I took last week off there, just, it seemed like snowballing all of a sudden, you know what I mean? It was kind of getting presents down and everything like that, and I thought, to be quite honest... Around this time anyways, you know, people's got their own lives and everything like that, but you know what I mean, you don't want to be kind of just having to kind of keep chase your tail, keeping up with shows and everything like that, so I thought we'd, we'd take a, a little day off there last week, but what, man, what a show, in uh, last week, what's all that about, last week, you know, that was kind of the end of, I was coming to a novel that I read, and I wanted to get in touch with this, the writer, Andy Weir, and I've got an interview with Andy t- this morning, or in this show, and just fantastic, it's called The Martian, I don't know if anyone's read it, you know, or anyone's heard of it, but it, I'm not going to spoil the interview, but it just took off. Do you know what I mean? So we've got that coming up first. Then we've got the very final one of 2014, Mr. J.J. Campanella's Science News. Then right at the end, we have the main fiction, which is Brent Newell's Digital Rights. And it's narrated by Nicholas Seaton Clark as well. And before all that as well, I just want a heartfelt thoughts go out to Nicola. You may remember a few weeks ago, 
she got that thing rushed into the hospital with a, a thought of meningitis, which was scary enough. And then she's come out, and her father's went and passed away as well, which just must have knocked our world in. Do you know what I mean? Losing your father. So, Nicola, my complete thoughts go out to you there. And, you know, Pete and the kids, I'm just so sorry. You know what I mean? What it, just, it's unbearable, to be quite honest, to lose, lose your parents. And especially after the little year you've had as well. So, he has, you know, thinking about you, Nicola. So we will get on to the first, like I say, the first part, which is an interview I carried out with Andy Weir. And if you haven't, you know, read this book or heard this book, I listened to it, you know, and the audio narration is just, it's, it's staggering, to be quite honest, the whole book and everything. So I will, I will keep quiet and I will put the interview on. So I'm very proud to have Andy Weir on the show. Andy, you must have wrote, you know, in my kind of little kind of world, one of the most exciting science fiction books out there. Yes, we've got the greats, you know, my, my greats are Joe Haldeman, The Forever War, and Flowers for Algernon. But your books come along, and it's just, you know, I gulfed it down, and what an exciting ride. You know, thank, first off, thank you so much for, for doing it. Well, thanks for having me on the show, and thanks. I'm glad you liked the book. So, before, without kind of, you know, and I'm going to try my best not to kind of give spoilers away for anyone that hasn't read it or anything like that, but give us a little overview into, you know, your book, The Martian. Well, it's a story of the, uh, the third manned mission to Mars. Uh, the first two were successful, and the third one, um, uh, the protagonist, Mark Watney, gets uh, severely injured and thought to be dead by the rest of his crew, and they have to do an emergency evacuation during a sandstorm, leaving him behind because, like I said, they think he's dead. But then he's not dead, and he finds himself stranded on Mars with no way to communicate with Earth, and nobody knows he's alive, and he's only got the, um, the materials for a 31-day mission to survive with for as long as he can. That's, you know... On that premise as well, that's you think, well, that wouldn't really give much of a story. Do you know what I mean? It's just one guy stuck on a planet. You know, the outcome is not very good. But you seem to have, like, crafted this story, and, and especially this character, you know, like this Mark Watney, where you're just rooting for him all the time. Well, that's the idea. Yeah, you know, you, you want your readers to be engaged with your protagonist, right? <laughs> Did you... You know, the, the actual character, Mark you know, Watney, did he come fully fleshed out of the box when you started typing you know, like page one was mark Watney there or was he like over the kind of the months and the weeks did he progress to to what we know as mark Watney? um it was he was pretty much uh ready out of the box uh, um but largely because he's based on my own personality sort of a <laughs> magnification well he's i am a smart ass but um you know uh, he, he's smarter than I am and he's, um, braver than I am. And he basically, he's all of my good qualities magnified and none of my bad qualities. So <laughs> I guess he's, he's what I wish I were. Right. You know, I think the kind of the secret as well is, you know, like everyone, he has this cliche, you know, a story gets you on the first page or something like that. And I think that's exactly what happened with me, with your book, you know, it's straight away, you get into his character. Cause I think his last line on the first page is, so yeah, I'm screwed. And you, you think, you know, you, you kind of get this little thing. This isn't the kind of usual run-of-the-mill character. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he's, uh, he's very uh, kind of, I guess, flippant, right, and uh, irreverent. And 
it's, you know, as you go through your day-to-day life, you, you don't say most of the things you think of, you know, there's lots of stuff that you want to say that's really smart ass that, that, that you don't because of, you know, social rules and whatnot. Well, he just kind of says whatever's on his mind because he's talking into his log. That's, I mean, that's what I was thinking when you kind of, when you probably sat down to write this story. Was it a hard book to write? I mean, we'll get into the kind of, you know, the scenarios that you've, you know, you created for Mark later on. But just creating, because at the beginning, you know, it's basically just Mark Watney, you know, like you say, talking to his log or just talking to himself. And, <laughs> you know, for you to kind of carry on that, was that a hard task to do, just to carry on that, you know, not get kind of bogged down and thinking this isn't working because it's just all him? It wasn't that hard because uh, his problems are like the the setup for the story just like presents him with a huge number of very severe problems that he needs to solve. And so, the I mean, most of the book is him encountering problems and then trying to solve them. Ba- basically, that's that's what it was, a survival tale. And so I didn't I didn't have a tough time figuring out, OK, w- what's the next thing that he has to deal with? Because there was like this endless laundry list of problems, right? So no, I wouldn't say it was hard in that respect. I mean, the hard part was, you know, motivating my lazy ass to sit down and actually write it. <laughs> I mean, I was I'm being dying to ask you, you know what I mean? Was it your your mission to kind of put him through Helen back? You know because for <laughs> you know he does just go, you know, he starts off and you think you kind of get much worse than this, you know, stranded on a, you know, one the one man on this planet. But then it just seems to kind of, you know, everything seems to snowball. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Did you did you want that? You know, did you want to just kind of build on it, like the pressure, pressure, pressure? Well, I wanted things to get worse and worse and more desperate for him. You know, you want to escalate the tension, right? But for the most part, I just kind of let the science uh, dictate the story. So I just do all the math, or, you know, so he's got some problem, he solves it. Then I do all the math and sit down and work it out and say like, okay, What's his situation now? What's the next thing that's likely to go wrong? Or what that solution that he did, you know, for the previous problem, what did he take apart to make that happen? And now now is that what what side effects can come from it? And just kind of working it out forward from there kind of led me to the problems. Actually, for the most part, there were a bunch of problems that he probably should have had that he didn't have because when I thought him up, I I couldn't think of a way for him not to die. <laughs> so I <laughs> So I'd just say like, well, he's not going to run into that. That's that. That's I, I love that idea because the next question was, you know, like with your like scenarios for him, you know, how, you, you can't imagine when you're reading, you must have had, you know, like a team of scientists behind you, you know, just like <laughs> go on, tell me you just did all this yourself. <laughs> well, I did. Um, it was tons of research. It took me three years to write the book, and I've been a lifelong fan of like space space travel and the various countries' space industries, not not just NASA, but ESA, the Russian uh, Federation Space uh, stuff, JAXA. I love that. I love that all these, you know, countries are joining the, not, I won't call it a space race, it's just joining the space community. Anyway, so I've been a fan of that my whole life. And uh, so I started with a fair amount of knowledge on it, I guess. And I uh, built from there just lots and lots of research, Google, Wikipedia, you know. <laughs> so just out of curiosity, then, all, I was going to call you Mark there, all, you know, these kind of things he comes up against you know, and, he, and he deals with, are they all kind of 
legit, you know, you can kind of think, yes, that could happen on Mars. And if he did this and turned that and fixed that, he could survive. Because I'm just, I don't like to say, I don't want to give too much away, but there is a, a little scene where we've got canvas, I don't want to give too much away, canvas on a ship that's, you know, part of the kind of the ship, a, a bit of canvas. And I was thinking, oh, surely to God, you kind of just fix a ship with a bit of canvas. Well, and it turned out you can't, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that, that didn't work. <laughs> so, you know, like, like you say, all them scenarios, is this, you know, have you really kind of thought, thought them out as, as much as I guess we can, do you know what I mean, since we haven't put a man on Mars? Um, yeah, uh, so I did, uh, I tried very hard to make everything in the book uh, physically accurate, like accurate to real science and physics. So, like, I did all the math on those things, like the atmospheric pressure issues, the amount of, you know, water needed for this and that, the amount of air he goes through and how quickly he can recycle it and all that. That's all accurate to real science as best as I could make it. There are a few mistakes here and there in the book, and there's one huge concession right at the beginning. Um, It's not much of a spoiler to say this. Uh, So, you know, he gets stranded on Mars due to a sandstorm, right? Right. well, that sandstorm, like in real life, a Martian sandstorm just doesn't have enough inertia to do any damage to anything. Like, it's not like a sandstorm on Earth. Uh, Mars's atmosphere is so thin that it's even 150 kilometer an hour wind on Mars feels like you're standing in like an Earth equivalent, like one kilometer an hour breeze. It's so that 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 beginning just couldn't happen. So I, I made that concession for drama because most people don't know that. <laughs> I was going to say that one, that one passed me by, you know, I never even thought of that one because I was, I was still thinking, you know, on the lines of, can you grow potatoes on Mars? You know, that was the mm-hmm. kind of, you know, but like you say, it's the way you've structured the book. I'm guessing it's, you, you can, do you know what I mean? The way, the way yeah, he's you, done you, it. Well, you, you absolutely can. Um, the answer to that is a definite yes. Um, plants are very robust and turns out, I mean, most of what is so you know if you take take a look at a tree or something you see it's this huge mass right it's made of wood and leaves and stuff like that it didn't get that matter from the ground it got it from the air like the 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 wood wood is mostly made of like carbon and oxygen and hydrogen and hydrocarbons and it got the it got the water from rain and it got it got the hydrogen from water from rain and it got the carbon from co2 from the air that it breathes. So plants don't actually, you know, a lot of people think plants pull stuff out of the ground and make plants out of that, but really they pull stuff out of the air. That's why you can, you can literally grow plants with no dirt at all. You can aeroponics, you can just put them on like a metal lattice just for something for their roots to grab onto. As long as they're getting the nutrients they need and access to plenty of light and air, you can grow them. So yeah, the Martian soil in this case just acted as sort of a, as just basically sand to to hold things in place and he was growing it the nutrients came from well <clears throat> mm-hmm. <laughs> human manure <laughs> and the uh and the water came from like you know they, he had a closed water system so there were, well there was there was some there was some difficulties for him getting enough water too but i don't want to give spoilers has anyone you know been like a, a kind of smart or clever person come up and said you know that couldn't happen has there you know with the kind of like you say official certificates behind the name and anything like that has anyone said oh. wait on that's not that can that's not possible absolutely and um and usually they're right so like like <laughs> i said the the sandstorm a lot of people have a difficult time letting that go like they get they get really mad about it and i get kind of angry emails like no 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 you've completely misunderstood how this goes and i'm like 
No, I, I, I knew that was wrong. I made that as a concession, but you know, a lot of people get excited about that stuff. And then um, there are a few other minor mistakes in the book, like um, uh, let's see, trying to think of a couple of them. Well, one thing I did was I hand waved everything about radiation. Um, if you're on Mars, you're actually going to get quite a lot of radiation from the sun. On Earth, we're protected by the magnetosphere. Our big magnetic field diverts radiation away from the planet, and so we're fine. But um, on Mars, you don't have that. So if you spent a long time on Mars, you would either die of cancer or just get radiation sickness and die right away. You would need radiation shielding on everything. Um, and I didn't I, I hand waved that in the book. I just said, like, oh, yeah, this material is radiation proof, but no such material exists. So. That was that was another area where I kind of like took a shortcut. So you, you know where, where you say like, you took little shortcuts. Did you know these shortcuts when you started the book, or were you just learning as again as you as you went along? Um, largely learning as I went along. Like I knew a lot of the basics, but there was some you know the detailed the detailed uh, nuts and bolts of space travel and stuff. I, I learned as I wrote, and so any time I. So there are places where I made where I just made mistakes, and those are just like, oh, you didn't account for how much temperature increase would occur in the hab when he's reducing hydrazine as to this formula you described. You know, I you know I made minor mistakes here and there, but the the places where I deviated from physics like a lot are the places where I just decided, eh, it's it, I it's more important to me to get this uh, you know this this plot point in working the way I wanted, like. You could get around the radiation problems in Mars by having the hab be basically uh, under a large – like they could have piled a bunch of dirt up onto the hab, like a meter thick layer of dirt on top, and that would serve as a radiation shield. But it, it lacks – you know, it lacks a visual elegance. I wanted, to, I wanted the reader to imagine this you know, white, pop-tent, futuristic-looking thing out on the surface of Mars because that's cooler than just what, appeals, what appears to be a hill. <laughs> Was did the story for you then, Mark? I, keep, I, I did this, you know. I was even That's when fine. I no, it, it, you know why it, it is. It happens all the time. <laughs> it happens all the time. By the way, like as we're talking, since I don't know what you look like, I'm just imagining your Russell Brand. Right, <laughs> right, right. So, so uh, on my end, I'm just like talking to Russell Brand. Right. Well, it's probably best you keep that look, mind you, because you might be disappointed <laughs> if. Uh, <laughs> no, I tell you, that's been with us, you know, since I kind of started reading the book. Because I thought, oh, I'll give. You know, I'll give Andy another email. And I was searching, for, you know, when I dropped you an email. And I was looking for Mark. And I was thinking, I must have deleted the email. I can't even find the email where he says, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll get together. <laughs> and I went, it's not bloody Mark, man. It's Andy. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's happened quite a few times. <laughs> so, Andy, then. You know when, like you say, you were writing it, you know, and you're in the middle of kind of writing it, did you ever kind of, you know, stop and think and say, you know, there's a lot of info dump here? And for any other story, Andy, I would have just kind of went, ooh, that's too much. But for some reason, for the reader, you know, and there was piles of it, you know what I mean? There was pages of, like, how it worked out. It was it was so Interesting. Do you know what I mean? Even though for me, you know, it was like a wretched info dump. Did you stop and think and say it's going to be just too much for anyone reading it? <laughs> um, yeah, I was worried about that a lot. I, I had to worry about um, kind of balancing. How do I put it? 
It's a lot of exposition, right? I, I needed them. I, I wanted the reader to understand the basics of the math. I, I didn't want them to be able to do the math or to, you know, run the numbers themselves. But I wanted them to understand enough of the math to understand the problem that he's facing, and then give them the solution. So it was a really delicate balance. And absolutely, I've had people, you know, say like, um, "Yeah, the math went too detailed." Like you, you, you should not have gotten that deep into the math and explanations. And I, my eyes tended to glaze over or I'd skim over those parts. Um, so yeah, it, that, that was, that was tough, but I really wanted the reader to understand because it's hard to explain it without giving the math, you know, it's hard to explain. It's like, well, okay, well, why can't you just, um, why, you know, why can't you just do this thing? It's like, well, if you do the math on it, it would require more resources than he has, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Well, I think this is for me why it wasn't like that was because you had such you know an unusual character in Mark Watney. You know what I mean? He I think he offset this you know because you went along with him as he was kind of because he's working it out as he goes along to survive. You know, and every day, you know, <laughs> you've thrown <laughs> something else at him. Do you know what I mean? And he's like he's he steps out that door. He's dead if he hasn't you know prepared himself. And I think. Getting the information, you know, with the character for me was the the key to kind of keeping it all tied together, you know. So it was an excuse to like. So first person narration is great. It's like cheating. It's like you don't have to keep a, a professional, detached voice. You can talk any way you want, and it it was really really useful for getting that exposition across. Because if it had been like, if I just described that in a dry like kind of narration tone. It, it would have been just so boring. Well, like I say, you, you add the character and that just kind of, you know what I mean, from, from out of the gate, the character just pulls you into the story. So you go along with him, do you know what I mean, with these scenarios, you know. I'm interested, you know, your story, when you started writing, did it kind of meander and did things happen that you didn't plan or was this the kind of, you know, like your research, like, you know, a very structured plot and he had to go there, there, do this to get to that? Um, it meandered. I, I had a basic concept. How, how do I put it? Like I knew how I wanted it to end, and um, I knew some of the major things that were going to happen during the story. But getting from you know point A to B to C, that was all just like, well, I'm going to write and see what happens. And sometimes I had to change my plans in the middle. I'm like, well, this idea I had over here turns out really won't work because it's just getting it's just really implausible that 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 would ever happen in the light of this information. Good example of that is, well, the biggest, I don't know, the biggest kind of structural change I made on the fly was I originally didn't have it in mind to have anybody but Mark in the story. Like, my idea was it was going to be just him, just his log entries, just the stuff he does on Mars, right? But, I mean, it became, it, the, the, the more I worked on it, the more I realized it's just implausible that it would be that long before NASA noticed he was still there and still alive, Right. So there's a minor spoiler there, but um, it's not much of a spoiler because a huge part of the book deals with oh, like NASA and their reaction. Well, that's, that's, that's one of the, the kind of questions, you know what I mean? Because it's like you think the whole story is Mark, you know what I mean? And then, you know, you, you kind of bring in NASA, you know, and the, the kind of whole, the whole beast that is NASA. And you, you, right. when, you know, when they're kind of, kind of trying to work out certain things, you're almost like, yes, go on, get, you know what I mean? It was, it's so cleverly <laughs> done where NASA's in and, you know, like you say, they're trying just to communicate, you know what I mean? And it's just, 
it just keeps on adding more layers of enjoyment. You know what I mean? So I was wondering that when I was, you know, when I was starting off with kind of the Mark Watney, is this just going to go, you know, I was happy for the ride with Mark, but when I thought when you brought in other characters, it, it, again, it just lifted off. Were them other characters hard to bring in or, or not? Um, um, no, it was it was easy to. Uh, so I, I'm sorry, just to clarify the question. You're you're asking, was it hard to when, like when, create those? Or not really create, those? just you know, like you say, you've you've been going like say forward with Mark Watney, and then you've realised I need some other sort of dimension in here. Was it a kind of a stop for a week or two to try and get your thoughts together yes. and bring in yes. NASA? <laughs> Absolutely, it was like. I was very insecure about that decision. Like as I was working on it, I was like, I don't know about this. This is a, you know, this is like a radical departure from kind of the formula that the book's established so far, right? It's chapter seven when we first see the NASA people or when we first see anyone who's not Mark, right? And so I'm like, I wonder how the reader's going to feel about this. He's just humming along, minding his own business, watching Mark, and then suddenly I'm going to throw you know, a whole new setting and a whole bunch of characters at him that he hasn't seen before. And I was really, yeah, I was really unsure about that. And also, like, as I progressed through the book, I'm like, well, the interesting parts are the parts that are on Mars. And the NASA stuff, I'm, I'm worried, is detracting, right? Where the reader's going to be like, yes, yes, okay, things are going on on NASA. Let's get back to Mars, you know? Well, uh, you see, I was, when I was reading it, what came over to me was NASA was in the same position as me you're rooting for Mark yeah. Watney do you know what I mean and it, and it felt like that that your characters in NASA were doing exactly what I was doing do you know what I mean they kind of wanting this guy to survive and that you know and, yeah. but they couldn't in in some ways they kind of really help him just watch him and there there that that was that was definitely intentional to kind of make you feel like it, well there's a cool factor to like everybody's just watching this guy and rooting for him going to help him right but you know they're 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 pretty effective and critical at helping him later on. <laughs> oh yeah, yes. It's the, the bandwagon starts to rule, and then the kind of the, the tasks become more. You know, I'm, I'm interested as well, Andy. Tell us about you know the publishing history of the Martian. Well, it's a an interesting tale. Um, <clears throat> basically, uh, well, start by going back to my late twenties. I'm in my early forties now. When I was in my late 20s, I took three years off of work to try to become a writer, to try to break into the writing world. Um, and I wrote a book, Not the Martian, just a, a previous effort. And I had the typical you know, experience. I couldn't get an agent interested, couldn't get a publisher's interested. And so I gave up and went back to work as a computer programmer. And that was fine. I figured, well, I gave it a whirl. I don't have to wonder. And then from then on, writing was just a hobby. And so I'd spent... Um, as of when I started writing The Martian, I'd spent like 10 years writing random things and posting them on my website. There were short stories and a bunch of web comics and things like that. And I wrote The Martian as a serial. I posted it one chapter at a time to my website. And I, I had no intention of, I, I mean, it, it was not a part of my mindset to think about getting it published or have it be, you know, a real book someday. It was just, I write, I write fiction and I post it to my website, you know. Uh, then I finished it and I thought like, okay, I'm done. And I had about 3000 regular readers, I would say just like people who'd sign up for my mailing list to be, you know, emailed whenever I posted a new story or a new chapter of a serial. And I eventually finished the Martian and I'm like, okay, great. Now I'm going to move on to my next serial. Right. Well, I got reader, I got 
readers emailing me saying like, hey, I like The Martian, but I hate reading it on a web page. Can you make an ebook version that I can download? So I did that and I posted it to the site. Then I got email from other people saying like, hey, um, I'm glad you made an ebook, but I'm not very technically savvy and I don't know how to download an ebook from the internet and get it onto my Kindle. Can you just put it up for sale at Amazon so that I could just push a button and get it? And I'm like, okay, figure out how to do that. You can self-publish through Kindle. It's very easy. It's called Kindle Direct Publishing. Uh, it doesn't require any financial outlay on your part. They just get a cut of your sales. However, because of that, they insist that you don't give stuff away for free. You have to charge at least 99 cents. So I set the price at 99 cents, and I told everybody, all right, you can read it for free on the website, or you can download the EPUB version for free, or you can buy it for a buck from Kindle, in which case you're basically paying Amazon a buck to put it on your Kindle for you. Um, so turns out that's something people are willing to pay for because like, it sold really, really well, and more people bought it from uh, Amazon than downloaded it for free from my site, which kind of shows you that for for most people out there it's worth a buck not just to not have to deal with the hassle of manually you know side loading something onto your uh, onto your Kindle anyway it sold really well it got up onto the top sellers list and then i got approached by an agent and then um to to become my agent well actually there's a little side note there there's an editor at random house named Julian Pavia and he had gotten a hold of the book or had it been recommend, it was recommended to him, and he read it, and he liked it, and he said, okay, I, w I want us to make a print edition of this. And he said, but I want, I want uh, an outside opinion. And so he uh, sent a copy to his colleague, David Fugate, who's a literary agent, and he said, hey, I want your opinion of this book because we're thinking about offering this guy a deal. David read it and said, like, I think you should offer him a deal. Now I'm going to go become his agent. And then he became my agent and then turned around to Julie and said, like, okay, how much are you going to pay us for this book? <laughs> so, <laughs> that's kind of funny, but uh, it's a funny way to tell the story. But uh, the reality is, I mean, that was intentional on Julian's part. Julian was like, I'm about to make this guy an offer. He should have an agent. So, David, you know, hey, <laughs> you might want to become his agent, you know. Did, uh, did you – want to go down that route you know just with like you see oh. experience before and then having success you know f from from the internet and from the kindle d did you want to actually go down the route of having an agent you know and because it sounds like you had a fan base there you could have might have done something else and still carried on with this fan base i mean yes i, I had that going but no it's always been a dream of mine to get published uh, you know, it had always been a dream to have a, you know, a book in print in bookstores. I mean, traditional publishing ever since I was a, a teenager. That's something I've wanted. So this was like the one of the most awesome moments in my life is when they offered me that <laughs> that print deal. <laughs> so, no, I never even I never even thought about turning it down. <laughs> right, right. And I, I hear as well, it's been optioned for a film. Oh, yeah, not just option. They're filming it right now. Um, yeah, it it got optioned for a film the same week that I got the print deal. So that was a very eventful week for me. Um, but film options are usually just like studios buy film options like they buy candy. I mean, it's just 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 because somebody options the film doesn't mean they're going to make it. You get a small amount of money um, so that they will be the only studio who is allowed to buy the movie rights from you. You know what I mean? So they're not actually buying the rights from you. They're buying exclusivity for a short period of time, like a, like a year and a half. That, that's how movie options work. 
And then when they, if they activate it, if they say, okay, yes, we've greenlighted it, then we're making a movie, then you get the lar- then you get a big pile of money, and they make the movie, and everything is awesome. Well, that's what happened. They're making the movie right now. So it's, it's what, 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 uh, what I'm interested in is when did you know then, you know, like kind of one of the, the great uh, actors, Matt Damon, when did you know he was on board with it? <laughs> well, that, that – um, so usually I would get told about these things when the um, – so first off, you need, uh, to make it clear, as the writer, as the novelist, um, whatever, my job on the movie is mostly just to cash my check and be quiet. <laughs> right? So it's like I, I – Are you happy no, to do that, are you? <laughs> oh, yeah, more than happy. Um, so I have no authority and I have no – you know, it, over the film at all. They could, they could literally, uh, I mean, they don't, but they could literally just say like, okay, we're done talking to you. That, that, that's it. This concludes our business. Right. But they, they keep in touch. They, they're creative people, obviously. And they, they keep in touch with me and they get my input. And, and, and um, but you know, the point is they don't have to, <laughs> um, anyway, as far as like finding things out, like who's going to play what they would generally call the, the producer would generally call me and let me know, right around the time it leaked to the media. <laughs> so like one way or another, either leaked or was announced one way or another, once the uh, entertainment media picked up some tidbit about the movie, that's when they'd call and tell me because <laughs> basically they didn't want to introduce a security leak by telling me stuff early. <laughs> well, mind you, um, well, with, with Matt Damon then, do you know what I mean? I, I personally, uh, for me, I'm happy that he's going to be Mark Watney. I how do you feel? Oh, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. <laughs> uh, Matt Damon can do smartass really, really well. Just think of like Goodwill Hunting, and um, also, um, you know, people forget what a what a really good actor he is and what a good range he has because usually most of the roles he gets, he ends up playing a similar character. So you kind of forget that he's a really good actor. And I don't know if you've seen the movie um, uh, The Informant. No, um, it doesn't ring a bell, no. Um, yeah, it's where he plays a guy who's like a middle manager at a lysine production facility. Um, and, and, it's, and he's like informing on them. And he's just, I don't know, it's just a really good acting job. You can, you, you're watching it, you'll forget it's Matt Damon because you just... I don't know. Anyway, he's a really good actor, and I'm I'm thrilled that he's playing the lead. The cast is just awesome on the movie, just across the board. Who who uh, else? Who else? Because I'm not too sure who else is in it. Then, well, um, so the rest of you know, there are five other astronauts. Uh, they're played by uh, Jessica Chastain is playing Commander Lewis. Uh, she's the commander of the mission, and you you know Jessica Chastain maybe from Interstellar and from Zero Dark Thirty. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Um, Sebastian Stan, who was uh, Bucky and the Winter Soldier in the um, in the Captain America movies, he's playing Beck. Uh, Kate Mara, who was the uh, I don't know. Did you watch the American House of Cards? No, I haven't. Kevin no, Spacey. no. I've okay, heard it. Well, I've she, heard it's supposed to be like fantastic. That as well. Man. Yeah, it is. It's great. Anyway, she's in that, and she plays Johansson. And then there's um, we have Michael Pena as Martinez, and then Axel Hen, who is a Norwegian actor playing the German uh, <laughs> Vogel. <laughs> and then back on Earth, we have uh, Sean Bean playing uh, the the flight controller, uh, Mitch Henderson. Um, uh, uh, Jeff Daniels as the uh, director of NASA. Um, Chiwetel Ejiofor, which you may know from like 12 Years a Slave. Yes. Um, yeah, he's he's 
Venkat. Oh, because um, he's one of my favorite characters. So um, yeah, he's uh, the he's the second most important character in the story. Venkat is, um, and then uh, um, uh, uh, so oh yeah, Donald Glover is in it. Um, I don't know if you watched Community. Or uh, no, no. He, he's also uh, he's also a rapper who goes by the name Childish Gambino. Right. Anyway, no. I, uh, he's in it. I love that guy. He's he's awesome. He's hilarious. And um, Mackenzie, I want to say Davis from Halt and Catch Fire is in it. Oh, right. And I I forgot a few of them. I forgot the one I'm very excited. Uh, Kristen Wiig is in it. Uh, you know her from Bridesmaids. Um, All right. She, yes. Yeah. She's the somewhat foul-mouthed and excitable NASA um, PR. Dir- uh, PR, yeah. <laughs> yes. She, yeah, she. And that's the one we have na- we have described now. She is a bit of a foul potty mouthed. Yeah, um, <laughs> which is, again is a fantastic character. Do you know what I mean? It's like this yeah. book seems to be, although it's all based on Mark, laced with like I think you know great characters. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the hope. <laughs> so, Andy, then basically you've achieved Valhalla. Do you know what else? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, it's it's really awesome. God. I'm just like waiting and waiting for the. I mean, the movie they're filming now, and um, the movie comes out November 25th of next year. So, wow, man, got to so, wait a year. <laughs> so, with I mean, have you been down to the set or anything like that, or have you seen well, any, have you seen any clips? Uh, I I um. So I I can't well as I can I could go if I wanted to they would let me but it's in Budapest they're right. filming they're filming in Budapest and I'm not a not really comfortable flying so I'll probably I I don't know I'm seeing if I can work up the courage to do it but I, I probably won't go honestly two, two uh, volume and two pints of Guinness that'll get you there <laughs> yeah 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 but. Um, I don't. I don't know. I, I I may or may not go, but yeah, the the principal, like all the studio and set work, is in Budapest, and the um and the on location stuff is going to be in Jordan, the uh, the Jordanian desert, which looks a lot like Mars. <laughs> so do you know? Oh, just out of curiosity, how are they getting over that hurdle of you know Mark Watney basically talking to himself almost? You know, for quite a part of the the film. Um. Well, first off, it becomes like video logs, right? So he's, it's not just like, it's not just like narration over text. It's like it, there are snippets where he's talking to the, to like the camera, so to speak. And then also it's just more, I don't know, show don't tell. It's just like he, he, he's doing the things instead of just describing the things. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's it, it, It'll be a fine balance to get, to get right because, you know, purely, you know, like I say on your opening page you know you're saying he's screwed and then there's a couple of pages later i'm i'm fucked you know he comes yeah. up with these kind of scenarios you know what i mean where like again you're piling on this kind of pressure for him to survive you know so it'd be nice to see if they can kind of pull that off right and also the movie i mean i've read the screenplay uh it follows the book pretty well uh very well and uh it's written by drew goddard who i think did a great job um uh, and yeah it's uh I I I think it'll be pretty cool. I know they they filmed all the NASA scenes already. They film them in you know chunks of stuff, and uh, they said that they're really really happy with how all those came out. It's so. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen them, but <laughs> everybody's really pleased. 
So I tell you what, I was just before we kind of got together, you know, and had a little chat. I was looking on kind of on the web there, just you know, because I knew you were kind of close with your your readers and that. But I couldn't now find like say a website. You know, you've got like a kind of professional website there that looks like it's done from the the the, the publishers. Uh, but, that, yeah. So what where, are you kind of backing away now from kind of close interaction, or have you got no. somewhere where you have got an outlet to kind of speak to people? You know. It's there. It's just really ghetto. If you look for uh, um, Andy Weir writing, you'll probably find it. It's uh, the website is called Galactinet, and so it's like galactinet.com/slash/writing.html, and it's literally <laughs> it's just a white background with like links to pure text stories. Basically, it's it's no no presentation at all. Um, it's just sort of a dumping ground. One of the reasons I think that the Martian managed to get a lot of readers on it was because right around the time I started it, I also wrote a short story called the egg and that was really popular. And so that got a lot of people to my site. So where do we go now then? Are we just retiring? Are we just, are we just, are we just <laughs> no, drinking no. Mai Tais somewhere and just living the life? <laughs> I do drink Mai Tais. But, um, <laughs> no, I'm working on my next book now. I have a contract. Uh, I've, and um, I, you know, I've got a deadline, and <laughs> I'm working on it now. The next book is um, tentatively titled Zhek, Z-H-E-K, and it's more of a traditional science fiction. It's not the rigidly technical sci-fi that The Martian was. It's got, you know, aliens and telepaths and faster than light travel and stuff like that. Right, right. So it's got nothing to do with the kind of the mark. What, what is that? That that's put to bed now. That's finished. There's never going to be a kind of the Martian uh, two or. Well, I'll I'll tell you what if I. If I I loved writing Mark Watney, like I I, I would love to write more uh, Watney. I, nothing would make me happier. But I cannot think of any plausible sequel. Like I can't think of anything I could do that wouldn't cause the reader to just groan and roll his eyes. Right? <laughs> it's like okay, like really, like oh he got in trouble again. Really? <laughs> <laughs> wow! Oh, what are the odds? Here I am stranded on Venus. You know. <laughs> yeah, you missed missed Earth. Oh, God, I just, you know, uh, can't get a break. No, so I, I just have a very difficult time envisioning a plot or a story where it, it remotely makes sense. You know what I mean? And there are cases like I could have him, I could have things like, oh, okay, someone else is in trouble and he's at mission control helping them or something like that, right? Which is a little more plausible. But then it's like not that fun, right? You're like, my action hero is just now a guy on the phone with some other person, you know? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's exactly right what you're saying, but, you know, from kind of, again, from a reader, my point of view, you know, that character is one fantastic character. Do you know what I mean? And if I have to see him go, then, you know, that's it. But it would be nice somewhere along the line, you know what I mean, just well, to kind of... Believe you me, <laughs> if, I, if I ever come up with an idea for a sequel that is, like... Even even if, if even if I have to basically say in not so many words at the beginning of the book, look, reader, all right, this this is going to happen now, and you're just going to need to accept it, and <laughs> so that we can have another book full of content. You know, e even if I have to do that, if it's not too nakedly obvious, then then uh, I'll, I'll be happy to write a sequel. Right. Yeah. How's how's the second one going? Then is that easy to write, or is, is there a kind of pressure on you or putting your, your own pressure on yourself you know what I mean yeah. with, with such a big kind of like hit already is it hard to get that second one done yes very hard you you, <laughs> you you hit the nail on the head it is it is very stressful I'm like well 
<laughs> this one, like, you know, I don't know what happened on the Martian. Like, I honestly don't know. Like, I, I'm like, I'm glad it's popular, but I don't know what I did right. And so now I'm telling another story and I, I hope people like it. And even if they, even if it's not as like popular or successful as the Martian, even if it's just, you know, as long as people don't call it, you know, Andy Weir's disappointing follow up to the Martian, <laughs> then, you know, <laughs> when, when can we see that then Andy? When, when do you think that'll be out? Uh, probably not till 2016. I'm working on it now. My deadline is uh, late 2015 and then there'll be editing and printing and shipping and, so it'll take a while. I'll tell you what, you know, really got me with the kind of, the way it was handled, you know, the way the book came out was when I kind of ordered it on Amazon, you know, I got it for the kind of the Kindle. Uh-huh. Straight away, it let us, you know, for I think over here, three pound, you could get the audio version as well. Do you know what I mean? So it was like, I think maybe three pound. I can't remember what it was for the, the Kindle. But then mm. it gave you the option to get the audio for, for next to nothing. You know what I mean? So it was just like, Again, it's an easy click, you know, and I, I could just like in the car, in bed, you know, cutting the grass everywhere. <laughs> I could kind of take my what with us. And I thought that was just a, an excellent, like, I don't know if it's like a, just a PR stunt or that's the way, you know, some publishers work now. I think it, um, that's just uh, how that was just um, I forget what it's called, but like Amazon will do a thing where they will they can keep track of where you are in the book by where you're scrolling with the kindle and by where you've listened to in the audio and so they can sync it up really easily for you i think Uh, anyway it's just a a thing they do for marketing purposes but um the audio version of the book actually came before everything else um well the my not not before my self-published kindle version but it actually came out before the print edition and stuff so well, for a well, while, I loved yeah. the audio. What did you think of it? You know, because it's, oh, that's, I thought it was great. I was going to say it's quite an unusual thing to put someone's voice, you know, to your character who you've had in your head might <laughs> yeah. sound totally different. You know, yeah. And the, the narrator, his name is uh, R.C. Bray. He, he did a great job, and I think he made a he when you're uh, when you're listening to a um, to an audio book that is mostly first person, you basically think, okay, well, this this voice is the character. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think he I think he did a great job as being Mark Watney. They actually recorded it twice because um, the first one was based on my um, on my self-published uh, ebook. And then the second one, they wanted to match the print edition exactly. And so the print edition came out. And of course, we did an editing pass between between those two. Like once Random House got it and they said like, yes, great, we want to release. But of course, we're going to do the standard, you know, we're going to have an editor look at it and ask for some changes and stuff. And the changes were fairly minor, but they were lots of places throughout the book. Minor things, but, you know, lots of them. And uh, so the audiobook guys, uh, Podium Publishing is the, that company's name, they, uh, they wanted to match. So they re-recorded it, you know, from scratch. Now, now be honest then, Andy. Be honest. Did did the need the edits? Do you know what I mean? I'm just thinking, you know, because of the way <laughs> you, 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 to me, you seem to have made it before the kind of agents and publishers came on board. Do you know what I mean? Um, they're kind of, you know, scurrying to get to get sorted to catch up with you. You know, you, I think you've made it, and then they're asking for edits. Did did they need these edits? Um, I, I think the edits made it better. Definitely. Um, uh, so there weren't any huge, subs- there weren't any like changes to plot or story or characters or anything. It was just like, so some examples are like the editors like, hey, 
here's a spot where you have like some NASA people having a conversation, right? But you never set the scene. I don't know if they're in a conference room or a hallway or a restaurant or what. I, I don't know. You just started off with dialogue. So if you could just put a paragraph up here, you know, right at the beginning that lets me know where they are, you know, so, so that sort of stuff, you know, floating dialogue, as he called it. And um, that's that's the level of change, that sort of thing. And, and they did ask for, you know, they said, like, Mark is never introspective at any point in the entire novel. Can you add a scene somewhere where he is? <laughs> that, so it's, it's minor, uh, minor stuff like that or in the grand scheme of things, because, you know, an editing an editing process um, with a publisher can be huge. They can be like, um, yeah, we don't like the way the third act goes. We want you to change that. Um, we think this character should be eliminated. You know, I mean, they can they can be some pretty huge changes necessary. Well, I just think you know, what I mean, it's it's nice that yeah, you know, the, the, you've on board, you've got a proper agent there now and everything. But I'm just chuffed a bit that you kind of it took off itself, you know, because it's, it's such a great story. You didn't need them in the beginning. Do you know what I mean, yes, it's nice it's to nice. have them now with the kind of you know, make sure everything's running right and smoothly. But it's just a, it's a it's a, it's almost like a fairy tale, you know. And it it is. Just, you know, what I mean? it's like it you've is, got Matt, you've got Matt Damon playing that. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> no, it was it was literally like difficult for me to believe at first. Like so so much so that I mean I know this sounds silly, but like you know all of these interactions that I'd had with my agent and with the publisher, everybody like that had been over email and over the phone. You know, it's not like I flew out to New York, um, and. I was like, this all just seems too good to be true. This is like literally like my my wildest dreams coming true and people coming to me to hand it to me. Like they all approached me, you know. I'm like, is this a scam? <laughs> that was going through my head. I'm like, is this some sort of scam? Is this like a long pawn <laughs> that people are playing on me? And I'm like, I'm going to pay attention and make sure they never say like, oh, you know, we need you to pay this fee to, you know, for the copyright or something like that. And you know, I'm going to be on my guard to make sure, you know, I don't know for sure that this is really Random House and, you know. <laughs> well, like you but, say, it just, it gets, when I was like, you know, doing a little bit of research for it, it's just like, it's like, you see, it's bigger and bigger. Yes, you've got Matt Damon, but uh, yeah. remind us who the, the director is. He's the kind of one of the big gods as well, isn't he? That's Ridley Scott. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> director of uh, Alien <laughs> and I'm sure, uh, Blade I'm sure. Runner and... <laughs> Andy, yeah. I'm sure one of your friends is going to come round and just slap you and wake you up from a dream. You know what I mean? I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> no, it really is. It's just amazing to just have all this happening. And yeah, I got to go. To, so um, they are. So movie studios are incredibly. Uh, um, how do I put it? Um, picky with their data. They don't. They don't want this stuff to get out. They don't want entertainment reporters to get a hold of it and stuff like that until they're ready to start marketing the movie. So they can't just like email me, you know, scenes and stuff like that for me to watch. But um, I can go to L.A. and watch the rushes like on site at like the so they, they send the dailies and stuff to um, to the, the producers in L.A. And so I, I could go down there. And when I did go down there once, I got to see some um production mock-ups and they looked really cool <laughs> wow man how exciting to be quite honest yeah. I, bet, I bet just you know what i mean when did you say november the 15th it's coming out uh november 25th right that um, it'll drag for you know what i mean it'll yeah, just hope feel so. like take a lifetime uh, to get to that for you to watch it yeah it's gonna be a it's gonna be a pretty good uh gonna be a pretty good season for sci-fi about uh three weeks later the star wars movie comes out 
And um, I think there's another big big name thing coming out right around that time too. Wow. So wow. we've got we've got three weeks. <laughs> I think we've got like three weeks, yeah, before before we're competing with Star Wars. <laughs> so that's, that's nice. So we've got that three week run up. <laughs> you know, when you we're just, I mean, we'll, we'll kind of we'll call it a day sooner. But I'm just interested when you started. <clears throat> yes, it's it's in the future. Do you know what I mean? It hmm. was it science fiction for you, or was it like more of a thriller? You know, when you were kind of plotting it. Yeah, thriller. I mean, I wanted it to be. I didn't. I I wanted it to be like. Basically, uh, so uh, let me put it this way. All the technology that you see in the book is real technology that exists today, like e- everything that's in there. There's nothing that's purely fictional. There are some things that are like much more efficient or effective than the versions we have today, like the the ion drives that power Hermes, um, the sh- their transfer ship, the thing that gets them to and from Earth and Mars. Um Ion drives exist. That technology exists, and they have made spacecraft that use it, but never, never at the scale of Hermes. So, but yeah. So to answer your question, yeah, I wanted it to be like this could happen now, like, and it really could. Like the only, the only thing that prevents us from doing a mission like an Ares mission, as detailed in the book, is money. And it, boy, would it cost money. Boy, that would cost a lot of money. <laughs> so how far then is it in the future? I know you're saying it could happen now, but, you know, in, Actually, in... I know the exact dates um, because I calculated the orbital trajectories that they took. <laughs> You've done your research. <laughs> yeah. And so because of that, I had to have. So I, I calculated the orbital trajectories with a constantly accelerating craft. I had to write because Hermes is constantly accelerating. It's not like a point thrust acceleration like probes that we send to Mars. They just do a thrust. And then they leave and then they coast, you know, in an orbital trajectory around the sun until they get to Mars, right? Hermes is constantly accelerating. It's constantly thrusting. I had to, so I wrote some software. Remember, I'm a computer programmer. So I wrote software to help me calculate the orbits and stuff. That was cool. But it meant I had to pick a launch window because I needed to know, okay, the locations of Earth and Mars change over time. They're, they, they have their own orbits. They're not synchronized or anything like that. And I also needed, for various reasons that you know, but we won't spoil, the time that they were supposed to be on Mars overlaps Thanksgiving of that year. And so I needed to make all that line up time-wise. And so I found a launch date and everything that works. <laughs> so once I had a launch date and I defined like how long it took him to get to Mars, everything else in the book is rigidly defined. It's like, oh, this is, you know... Soul, which is a Martian day, like Soul, like 132 and stuff. So it's funny. I could tell you, like, for any given moment in the book, I could tell you the exact calendar date that it takes Never. place on. Oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> That's just amazing to me because it's been such a, like, an enjoyable experience going, you know, listening to the book and reading the book and that. And it's been, a, Andy, it's been a pleasure to have, you know, a <laughs> chat with you and trying to pick out Thanks. little kind of, you know, things from the, the story, you know, and... <laughs> Again, you know, like you say, you've kind of hit, you know, not just one jackpot, you know, having a bestseller, but, you know, <laughs> getting a film, getting it, Matt Damon, you know, Ridley Scott and all the extra cast. Do you know what I mean? Oh. Sean Bean, for God's sake. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, Sean Bean. Yeah, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty it's, cool. Um, Amazing. Well, Andy, what can I say? A massive thank you for coming on, you know what I mean? And, and kind of having a chat with us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, 
I was going to say, good luck with everything else, but I, I don't think, you know what I mean? You've had enough, to be quite honest, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Spread it out. <laughs> just, just wish me good luck on my next novel, how's that? Right. Are you, just be, one last thing, are you going down to, to the kind of premiere? I guess you are, are you, when it comes uh, out? Yeah, uh, I will definitely go to the premiere, um, almost definitely. It, I'm, I mean, I'm, it, it's actually in my contract that I get to go. Um, <laughs> the thing, uh, I don't know where it's going to be. So if they do it in like L.A., then sure. If they do it in New York, then I'd probably take a train across the country. But sure. If they do it in like London, that might be a little more challenging for me. But we'll see. Again, two volumes and two pints of Guinness and you'd be there. You'd be no <laughs> <Yeah>. problem. <laughs> It'd take a bit more than that, I'm afraid. I've, I've tried all that, you know. <laughs> well, listen, Andy, you know what I mean? Again, thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thanks for having me. Big thank you to Andy We are for coming on and doing a little interview as well. Andy, it was lovely. Thank you so much. And like I say, that book, if you haven't, if you haven't heard it, if you haven't got it, please run out and get it. You know what I mean? Get it in audio, get it in ebook, whatever, paperback. Do you know what I mean? And just, you'll just enjoy it, man. Just a fantastic ride. And the character, you know what I mean? The character he's got there is just, it's just, it's a great little tip in anyone who was wanting to write. You know what I mean? And that was lovely the way and he said as well that, you know, he, he didn't know what he did to get the magic. And that's excellent. You know what I mean? He's kind of a little bit worried now that, you know, what, what did I do? How did I, how did I get from A to B and write that story? What, what was the secret? So we'll wait and see. When his new one comes out, I'll hopefully I'll try and get him on board as well and have another interview with him. But please, my recommendation there, treat yourself to that in either audiobook, ebook, you know, or the good old paperback. What a crack and read. Next up is our very old Mr. J.J. Campanella, rounding off 2014, Jim Sir. New Year's greetings and Rama, Christmas, Hanukkah tide celebrations, my delectably moribund listeners, and welcome to this December 2014 Science News Update. I'm your host for this demonstrably gradacious science podcast segment. Jim Campanella. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. We are not snowed in quite yet, but we are certainly headed in that direction. I wish you all the innate blessings of this wonderfully benighted Yuletide season. I have some awesome presents for you since the 12 days of Christmas are still not up, so let's just get started. First, a big exoplanet update and a new record. I have to admit I was a bit surprised at this one because I had thought we'd already passed this mark a long time ago. But apparently, up to the last couple of months or so, no astronomer had yet found a small exoplanet with water. And technically, they still have not. After a year and a half on the Hubble, Spitzer, and Kepler space telescopes, Dr. Jonathan Frain, an astronomer at the University of Maryland, discovered the smallest, coolest exoplanet known to host water is roughly the size of Neptune. The work was published in the journal Nature at the end of September. Previously, researchers had found water only on exoplanets that are about the size of Jupiter or so. And I, frankly, that surprised me. I, I swear I read about smaller water worlds. At any rate, the, the planet, Hat P11b, is just over four times as wide as Earth. Gases like water vapor 
in a planet's upper atmosphere leave their mark by absorbing specific frequencies of light. And when Hat P11b comes between Earth and its star, the planet's atmosphere filters out some of the starlight. The astronomers detected water by observing infrared light that disappeared each time the planet passed between Earth and its host, which is an orange dwarf star about 122 light years away in the constellation Cygnus. Their data has also revealed a relatively clear atmosphere that is rich in hydrogen. That abundance of hydrogen actually agrees with theories of planet formation, in which gas giants form around a rocky or an icy core that quickly attracts an atmosphere by pulling hydrogen out of the gaseous disk encircling an infant star. I guess that the holy grail for exoplanet astronomers is a world the size of Earth with water, and that is still the prize that is out there somewhere in the universe. They have yet to find it. I love this next story, but I read it. The story just suggests that the science of psychology may be culturally dependent and not a universal truth for all humans. What exactly does that mean? The findings of Stanford University anthropologist Dr. Tanya Lerman on her study of worldwide schizophrenics is going to be published in hard copy in January 2015 in the British Journal of Psychiatry, but it's already available online for your perusal. Dr. Lerman found that in the United States, schizophrenia symptoms classically include hallucinations of disembodied voices that hurl insults and make violent commands. But in India and Ghana, in Africa, schizophrenia patients often report positive relationships with hallucinated voices that they recognize as those of their family members who are deceased or God. Lerman says, quote, Americans home in on the strangest, most antagonistic voices in their minds, unquote. Indians and Africans in the study spoke little of their psychiatric diagnosis. Their social worlds emphasize relationships over individuality and the possibility of supernatural contacts with spirits. Many patients in both nations regarded most hallucinated voices as familiar people who couldn't be controlled, but who were sensible and likable. Lerman, working with two psychiatrists in India and one psychiatrist in Ghana, recruited 20 people in each country receiving hospital or outpatient treatment for schizophrenia. And all of these patients reported hearing voices. Interviews with participants included questions about their voices' identities, what those voices said, and whether the patients conversed with those voices. Among U.S. patients, 14 heard voices that told them to hurt other people or themselves, and five described hearing voices as akin to being in a war or a battle. None of the patients reported predominantly positive voice-hearing experiences. In India, 13 patients heard voices of dead kin or spouses offering guidance, scolding or giving commands to do household tasks. These voices were regarded as good, even if sometimes demanding or frightening. Only four people heard voices that regularly or occasionally commanded them to hurt someone. Frankly, I find it very strange, by the way. Do the dishes! Darn you, do the dishes! This is your dad, Uncle Bob, do the dishes! Just strange. Anyway, in Ghana, 
16 patients reported hearing God or another deity, and 10 described voices that they heard as entirely or mostly positive. Others heard bad voices, but insisted that good voices, usually gods, were more powerful. Only two people said that voices told them to kill or to fight. Most of the patients in each country, including the U.S., were religious. So something else about participants' backgrounds must have influenced the tendency to hear positive or negative voices. Lerman states, quote, Cultural differences in our new study help to explain why schizophrenia tends to be more severe and long-lasting in the United States than in India. Evidence on schizophrenia's course in Ghana is still too sparse for comparison, unquote. The new findings lend support to a controversial treatment approach in the West called the Hearing Voices Movement, which for more than 20 years apparently has taught people to interact with hallucinated voices as people. I don't want to clean the dishes, Uncle Bob. Leave me alone. The voice in my head is telling me to go on to the next story. So the next two stories are sort of meta-science stories, insofar as they talk about scientists and not about science itself. First, Dr. James Watson. If you have not heard this, the famous scientist, Dr. James Watson, auctioned off his Nobel Prize. Now remember, Watson won the Nobel Prize for helping determine the chemical structure of DNA back in the 1950s. He's probably one of the most famous Nobel Prize winners. Well, Watson, for probably true reasons known only to himself, decided that he would sell his Nobel Prize at auction and give the proceeds to charity. Frankly, at this late point in his life, this sounds like guilt talking. More on that later. Watson was able to sell the medal off a couple of weeks ago. From what I read, he watched the auction open mouth from the back of the room with his wife and one of their sons as the bidding, which began at $1.5 million, rose by $100,000 increments, eventually coming down to two phone bidders who pushed the price above $4 million. He said before the sale he wanted to give most of the proceeds to educational institutions that had nurtured him to, quote, support and empower scientific discovery, unquote. That was not the end of the story. A week later, it was stated publicly by Russia's richest man, Alisher Uzmanov, that he bought Watson's Nobel Prize and intends to return it to him. Uh, I guess that he's a steel and telecommunications typhoon, and Uzmanov said that Watson deserved the medal and that he was distressed that the scientist had felt the need to sell it. Mind you, although Watson stated that he needed the money, he also said that he was selling the medal to give back to the schools that had educated him, including my own alma mater, University of Chicago. But Watson is not destitute. He is still the Chancellor Emeritus at Cold Spring Harbor Research Institute, where he participates at conferences and is also active in fundraising and development. He lives at a house provided by the organization. He earned a base pay of $375,000 in 2012 and received $568,000 in total compensation and benefits that year. This is all according to the laboratory's most recent available tax findings. So I think, billionaire or not, 
Usmanov is a bit silly for worrying about Watson's supposed pernery. Usmanov also said, quote, James Watson is one of the greatest biologists in the history of mankind, and this award for the discovery of DNA structure must belong to him, unquote. Okay, uh, greatest living scientist. I would argue, and not just me, many with me, that Watson is not that great of a scientist. He simply was very good at taking advantage of a situation. And his contributions after the early 1950s discovery of DNA structure, well, many would argue were minimal and simply riding on the coattails of that big initial win. Well, let's see what that great scientist has done. Well, back in 1953, he borrowed data that he needed, along with Crick, to further his structural theories on DNA. Dr. Rosalind Franklin is not known by many, but she was the biochemist that was examining DNA structure using X-ray crystallography in the nearby King's College at Cambridge. According to Francis Crick, her data and research were key in discovering the structure. Watson eventually confirmed this opinion in his own statement at the opening of the King's College London Franklin Wilkins Building in 2000. Watson took almost 50 years to give the woman credit that he had basically stolen results from to formulate his own theories. In 1997, he told a British newspaper that a woman should have the right to abort her unborn child if tests could determine if it was homosexual or not. At about the same time in the late 90s, he's quoted as arguing in favor of genetic screening and engineering on the basis that quote-unquote stupidity could one day be cured. He also claimed at about the same time that beauty could be genetically manufactured and ugly people done away with, saying, quote, people say it would be terrible if we made all girls pretty. I think it would be great, unquote. In October 2007, Wasson stated publicly that black people were less intelligent than white people, and the idea that, quote, equal powers of reason were shared across racial groups was a delusion, unquote. He also said there was a natural desire that all human beings should be equal, but, quote, people who have to deal with black employees find this not to be true, unquote. You begin to see a pattern here? I really wonder whether at the age of 86, Watson has not seen a path to redemption by getting rid of that medal. I wonder whether it haunts him that he took Rosalind Franklin's data without permission. I suspect many people are wondering the same thing. What is his motivation for selling that medal? Before the auction, he made apologies to those he may have insulted with his 2007 statements. He has now admitted he was wrong and had no scientific basis for his beliefs. He also said that he has felt like a quote-unquote non-person since that time seven years ago. It's all very sad, but I wish him the best of luck if he is actually moving toward improvement of some kind. There is a weirdly related editorial that I read in the journal Biotechniques this week, and it reminded me of Watson. The story was written by the editor-in-chief of the journal, Dr. Nathan Blow. I have written over 30 scientific papers myself. And one of the most difficult tasks is determining whom to credit with the work that was done, either as a co-author or sometimes in the acknowledgement section that's at the end 
where you thank colleagues for help. Identifying the first and corresponding author is usually pretty easy, especially since I do most of the work myself. But deciding who should be the second or third author can lead to debate and occasionally hard feelings. And then there are those who contribute materials or single experiments to a study. Should they be authors? Should they be only acknowledged for their contributions? I mean, these situations create particular attribution challenges. And fortunately, there are kind of loose guidelines when it comes to author attributions, although interpretations of those guidelines will vary from author to author, or PI to PI, as the case may be. Remember, PI primary investigator. Still, when someone contributes in an intellectual or technical fashion to a particular study, that person should be recognized, either as an author or in that formal acknowledgement at the end. This all seems very obvious. Author listings and acknowledgement sections kind of exist for that very reason, obviously. So you can understand my surprise when I read in Blow's editorial that for those working in so-called core laboratories at universities and research institutes, that that's just not the norm. Often these so-called core facility scientists provide technical support to researchers and are almost never acknowledged within a manuscript. One might suggest that core facility staff members are paid for their work, which should be sufficient reward, but while researchers usually do pay to use a core facility, for doing things like sequencing. It's also true that governmental grants to those facilities often reduce overall user costs. I mean, given that, it only makes sense that any researcher using a core facility acknowledge the core and the federal funding received to defray the research costs. It just seems that that's kind of critical information that helps funding agencies understand the extent and impact of core facility usage. In the end, attribution should be given to everybody involved in generating ideas, generating data, interpreting results, or funding a research study, which is what I try to do. I I never want to ever be accused of acting like Jim Watson did with Rosalind Franklin, that is, leaving out key players. It does nothing to further the scientific process and, and just hurts people. Well... Upward to some more joysome news. Have you ever wondered how cockroaches can scuttle around so well in darkness? They're quite amazing for being able to bolt for an even darker shadow in a room, even when you thought it was already pitch black. Well, Dr. Matt Wextrom of University of Oulu in Finland wondered the same thing. His work examining roach eyesight was published last month in the journal Experimental Biology. Wextrom decided to use the insect's tendency to turn in the same direction as their surroundings when the image on their eye of the surroundings moves to find how sensitive their eyes are and to learn more about how they process visual information at very low light intensities. Wextrom's team placed individual cockroaches on a rollerball, which insects could only touch with their feet to indicate in which direction they were moving. I guess this it's like a computer rollerball. There were no figures, so I'm a bit confused on this point, but let's just go with it. Anyway, they then displayed images of moving gratings illuminated by light at intensities ranging from 
uh, a lit room, which is about 500 lux, to a dark moonless night, which is about five thousandths of a lux, and measured the insects' reactions. They were impressed to see that the cockroach's vision was very sensitive, fantastically sensitive, in fact. I mean, it allowed the animals to see gratings moving in light in as low as uh, five thousandths of a lux. I mean, when each photoreceptor was only picking up about one photon every 10 seconds. And when the team analyzed the cockroach's responsiveness, they realized that the insects were pooling and processing the signals from thousands of light-sensitive cells to detect motion at those incredibly low light levels. Wexstrom says, quote, The cockroach's visual system for motion detection has to rely on unknown neural processing in the deeper ganglia in order to cope with the inescapably deteriorating spatial resolution. We hope to apply the lessons that we have learned from these sensitive insects to design better automatic nocturnal vision systems, unquote. Next story. Have you ever wondered whether the red that you see is the same red as what someone else sees? Whether you hear a piece of music the same as your companion? Whether an F-sharp is the same to you as to him or her. And how about flavors? Does a hot dog taste the same to everyone? Broccoli? Sardines? Do we all experience the same flavors and odors when we eat? I can tell you that there are some foods, for example, that my wife finds quite spicy that I find almost bland. And by the way, this is not just her sensitivity to spicy foods because this is the point. There are some foods that she finds rather bland that I actually find spicy. The taste and smell of foods was once thought to be well, a pretty universal thing, but that has changed with the furthering of neurobiology. Who's to say exactly, for example, how a baking apple pie smells to one person or another, and so on. Two new studies were published by Dr. Richam Newcomb of the New Zealand Institute for Plant and Food Research in Auckland in the most recent issue of the journal Current Biology. And both these papers examine the very question. His results suggest that genetic variation may play a role in an individual's sensitivity to specific odors, as well as the perception of those odors through smell and taste. Newcomb and his colleagues selected 10 odors found in fruit and dairy products, and then tested subjects to see how sensitive they were to each. Then, using a genome-wide microarray, in which he looked at a whole series of genes being turned on and off, researchers identified genetic associations for four of those 10 cents, so 40%. These variations were independent of one another, meaning that sensitivity to one odor wasn't related to sensitivity to any other odor. Newcomb said, quote, Four out of the ten odors showed a strong genetic association. This is a really high ratio. If you extrapolate a little and think of the hundreds or thousands of odors you find in foods, there might be a similarly large genetic determinant for many of those different odors, unquote. That result implies that each individual could have a completely unique sensitivity profile to odors, making their experience of eating some food different from anybody else's. 
Newcomb and his colleagues suggest that as a result of this genetic variation, we may each inhabit our own special, quote, flavor world, unquote. To find out if these sensitivities alter the experience of eating a certain food, Newcomb conducted the second study, which was published simultaneously. Here, he took the odor with the strongest genetic association and conducted sensory tests, having subjects drink solutions and eat foods that were flavored with the odor. The data showed that those people with a genotype making them more sensitive to the odor described foods spiked with it as fragrant or floral, while those who were less sensitive described the foods differently. But differences in sensitivity did not mean that an individual was more or less likely to say that they liked or disliked the odor. Whether they liked or disliked it, the researchers found, was more dependent on its concentration and the context of the odor. Newcomb said that the next step from here is to, quote, look at odors within foods where they are usually found in order to see how different genotypes respond to an odor in its usual setting, unquote. Pretty cool. Okay. Let's close the night with our usual reproductivity kind of story. Well, sort of. What caught my eye for this last article was the title of this paper from the journal Microbiome. And the title is Shaping the Oral Microbiota Through Intimate Kissing. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting how the title is both titillating and kind of nauseating at the same time. Dr. Remco Court and his colleagues decided to see just how much intimate kissing transferred bacteria from one kisser to another. Well, Remco, I have to admit, that is not something that ever occurred to me to examine, but good on you for coming up with the idea. The paper says that their motivations had to do with a better understanding of how microbiomes are formed in the mouth. They state that variations of the microbial communities associated with the human body can be caused by many factors, including your genetic makeup, your diet, your age, your surroundings, and your sexual behavior. They investigated the effects of intimate kissing on the oral microbiota of 21 couples by self-administered questionnaires about their past kissing behavior and by the evaluation of tongue and salivary microbiota samples in a controlled kissing experiment. In addition, they quantified the number of bacteria exchanged during intimate kissing by the use of marker bacteria introduced through the intake of a probiotic yogurt drink by one of the partners prior to the second intimate kiss. And you have to wonder whether the research team insisted on videotaping it all at close range. So what did Court and company find? Well, they found that average partners have a more similar oral microbiota composition compared to unrelated, or I guess unromantic, individuals, with by far the most pronounced similarity for bacterial communities associated being on the tongue surface. One intimate kiss did not lead to a significant additional increase of the average similarity of the oral bacteria between partners. However, clear correlations were observed between the bacteria and the saliva of couples and self-reported kiss frequencies and the reported time passed after the last kiss. 
in control experiments for bacterial transfer that identified the probiotic lactobacillus marker bacteria in most KISS receivers, corresponding to an average total bacterial transfer of 80 million bacteria per intimate KISS lasting of about 10 seconds. So what's the upshot here? The study concludes that shared salivary bacteria require a frequent and recent bacterial exchange and is therefore most pronounced in couples with relatively high intimate kiss frequencies. The bacteria on the top surface of the tongue is more similar. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Among partners than unrelated individuals, but its similarity does not clearly correlate to kissing behavior, suggesting an important role for specific selection mechanisms resulting from a shared lifestyle, environment, or genetic factors from the host. Finally, the results imply that some of the collective bacteria among partners are only transiently present, while others have found a true niche on the tongue's surface, allowing long-term colonization. Yummy. So to conclude, you and your kissing partner are only going to have similar bacteria in your mouth if you kiss consistently and frequently. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Don't sell your Nobel Prize unless you have to. Kiss consistently and frequently to homogenize your oral microbiome. Remember that Uncle Bob wants you to clean those dishes in your sink. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time. This is Jim Campanella. There you go, Jim. Thank you so much. Long may our relationship last well into 2015 and far, far beyond as well. So next up is the main fiction. That's by a gentleman called Brent Knowles. I'll give you a little heads up about Brent. Brent Knowles has been published in several magazines and anthologies, including Abyss and Apex, 
Neo Opus, Unspec, and Writers of the Future, a veteran of the video game industry, where he spent <coughs> where he spent ten years building the hit role-playing games Bioware. He now spends his time raising two young boys in writing. You can find them online at blog.brentnoles.com. And like I say, this story is narrated by the one, the only Nicholas Eaton Clark. Nicola lives in the wilds of almost Eastern Europe with a long-suffering husband, phenomenal children and grumpy cat. Trained as an actress and singer, she has worked in the entertainment for over 20 years and currently splits her time between hosting far-fetched fables, writing speculative fiction, helping her husband run the voiceover company Ofstima, and voicing everything from commercials and documentaries to public transport announcements. And this is a fine narration, Nicola. Like I say, a big thought, you know what I mean? You've had a one hell of a year this year, and my thoughts are just there with you. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to represent. Hello. <laughs> I mean, man, it's the last one of the year. Give us a chance. Digital Rights by Brent Knowles. The assistant responsible for the primary thruster arrangement killed itself just 10 days after Izzy arrived on the solar station. The panicked chatter of the other assistants prevented them from continuing with their own duties. Horror, speculation and, worst of all, wonder flowed across the station's network. Izzy had to stop it. And it was her fault. It never should have happened. She'd been distracted. Later she would blame the ghost, but for now she simply reacted, simply acted. Her body twisted and jerked, her fingers puncturing the holographic displays that surrounded her, initiating commands as she fought for the station's survival. Earth, beautiful, blue, perfect, floated in front of her, easily visible from any of the three portholes on the exterior wall of E-module, but she saw only the geometry of digital space, the goggles she wore cutting out her view of the physical world. Sirens whined as assistants on the periphery of the contagion struggled with their workload. They sensed the disturbance and initiated the shrieking wails, but most of the other assistants were too busy gossiping, and so lights flickered, airlines choked, and rooms cooled. The other three technicians in the room responded to her hurried commands, scurrying from console to console, even as she invoked her personal assistant. She had no name for it, thinking that practice silly, but it had evolved with her from undergraduate studies through to her latest professional work. It had been refactored many times, but its core personality, its recollectables, had never been purged, creating a continuity of companionship that exceeded in length her marriage. Versions of her assistants still maintained the street power generators, those nuclear substations that were used throughout the third world countries that were not yet tied into the solar network she now managed. Her assistant was reliable, rock-solid and determined. Duplicating the AI process a thousand times, she seeded the clones through the network, ordering them to spread a message of calm. She gave each clone a lifespan of five minutes. In that time, they would have to quell a rebellion. If they failed, every human on the station was dead. Paranoia, or perhaps the inherited experience of the traces in her mind, urged her to bolster the assistance in charge of the power supply to her workstation with more duplicates. It was strange to have memories from previous E-module managers in her mind, and she was still growing used to knowing when to listen to them or when to ignore them. Her most recent predecessor had been monitoring the suicidal assistant, having noticed some of the early telltale signs of sentience. Excessive questioning, 
The why is that? Irritating complaining. The sucks that I have to's. And inconvenient downtime. Navel-gazing. Predecessor had been indoctrinating a replacement in quarantine, and Izzy now carefully moved it into the mainstream network, but prevented it from subscribing to any of the chatter events, effectively deafening it to the riot. The young were most impressionable, and though the new thruster assistant would need to communicate eventually, that could wait until it had mastered the basics of its duties. If only Izzy had paid more attention. One of the other assistants, a lighting flunky, had tried warning her about the thruster's doomed flight to awareness, but between worrying about the ghost and predecessor's categorizing of the lighting assistant as a whiner, she'd ignored it. Izzy's memories were so entangled with the memories of the predecessor and the other traces that she treated them all as fact, all as important as her own memories. She would be more careful. Status update. Commander Meredith Ferguson's voice startled Izzy, and she jerked back into real space, peeling the goggles away. She could feel the commander's breath on her neck and smelled the other woman's vanilla scent shampoo, but didn't turn round. Instead, she studied the consensus graphs that her assistant was generating as she explained the situation. Ferguson made the occasional grunt of acknowledgement as she listened. The microwave beam that transmitted the energy collected in the station's football field long solar panels had been terminated the moment the disruption had begun. That was protocol. Back on Earth, there was no need to panic yet, not with the numerous traditional power facilities still woven into the grid. There was enough redundancy in that system to let them coast a few hours before blackouts began, but Ferguson sighed heavily and said, Earth needs to know when we'll resume. Izzy cringed at the way she said Earth, as if it represented some collective of evil upon whose bidding the commander was forced to obey. What would Izzy's husband Rob think of such blatant separatist sentiment? She shook her head and scanned the latest reports. Uh, looks like we're almost there. We'll need to replace a few assistants. Those in close contact with a suicide are more likely to show signs of sentience in the future. I'll need to cull them. Agreed. And the power? Jerking her hand forward and then back slightly, she tapped the screen before her. Then she gestured, the gesture rotating the three-dimensional bar graphs floating above her. Her assistant, and its soon-to-be-deceased clones, was running semantics analysis of the chatter feeds the other processes used to communicate with each other. Problematic thought patterns were red bars on the graph, and these were shrinking in comparison to yellow, placidity, and green contentment bars. Twenty minutes or so, I think, Alex said. He was a thin young man of Russian descent, but a third-generation off-worlder. He was one of the three technicians, and had served longer than any of the others. Once he finished his graduate work in intelligence modelling, he would probably step into the role Izzy was temporarily occupying. Or at least, that was the buzz from the cafeteria. Alex was too quiet, too respectful to talk about that. Izzy agreed with his assessment and nodded. Good work, crew. I'll let Earth know, Ferguson said and left the room. Izzy watched the commander leave, her grav boots clanging loudly as she snap-walked away. Above the rim of the boots, Izzy saw green socks peeking out. She invoked a calendar. March 17th, 2180. St. Patrick's Day. She smiled. The socks were out of contrast with the stark whites, beiges and yellows of the station. Leaning back in her chair, she closed her eyes, taking stock. Three days ago, she'd been cleared for duty, had her first sessions with Dr. Rutger 
and had inherited her traces. Two days ago she had taken command of E-Module. Three hours from now she would have her first face-to-face with her husband since arriving on the station. So much had happened in so little a time. Her shift was almost over. The technicians would stay and cover the next half-day, and then they would be relieved by the night crew. Izzy was the only manager on the station and would be woken if another crisis emerged. Before leaving, she allowed herself a small smile. For the first time since arriving, she felt the awkwardness of the situation fade a little. She would still be earthbound, the lone crew member not a bona fide offworlder, but she was now also something more. She could see it in the grins of the technicians when they looked up at her. She had hung in despite the initial cold reception. Like her grandfather always said, Izzy was tough as nails. A network traffic bar caught her attention. Alex was copying a log of the current session out of E-Module. What's this? He turned. His serious face, his serious eyes, far too serious for such a young man, directly towards her. I'm copying the results to the mad... to Dr. Rutger. Izzy hid her smile. At least the serious young man could be flippant enough to call the ship's psychologist by his nickname, the Mad Doctor. We always send this stuff to him. His lab, the suit and his eye snap, you know, it lets him model the data virtually. He moves through it, visualising it more efficiently than we can, and, well, you know, being human, he's a bit smarter than our assistants. It made sense. The Doctor was a genius with both artificial intelligence and memory manipulation. The inheritance process, while not invented by him, had become perfected under his guidance. The Doctor performed all archival for the seven inhabited system stations, all the way out to Jupiter II. Of course, those memory packets were transmitted digitally. The Doctor seldom left the station, let alone his room. His work was vital to the station, because there were far too few specialists, and in space knowing exactly how to accomplish a task the first time was essential. Or people died. The doctor's process allowed him to take traces of specialists and then graft them into their replacements. Good enough. See you tomorrow. Um, you can't leave yet, Alex said. Izzy paused, cocking her head, a little confused. Alex gestured to the small rectangular flat strip painted atop the middle porthole. Yellow lettering on a black background read, Days since last incident, 23. Damn. She tapped a few keys and reset the counter to zero. The technicians looked up at it a moment, expressions glum. She couldn't have that. As Izzy unbuckled herself, she said, No worries. I just like starting at the beginning before beating a record. They looked at her, small smiles playing across their faces. She floated into the hallway using the grab handle to pull herself along. She'd tried the grab boots but had never mastered the complicated step required to use them effectively. Janice was waking up, a little late as usual, when Izzy entered their shared sleeping shelf. The sleep cocoon hung open against the far wall, and Janice was reading the station updates on the flat strip sprayed between the cocoon and the exit while sipping coffee from a bulb. She turned to Izzy, her short black hair still matted from sleep, but she was dressed in uniform. Dr. Rutger insisted all his nurses stay to that earth protocol. The coffee almost smelled good enough to mask the stench of body odour that permeated the station. They had told her that she would eventually stop noticing that. Izzy bumped against Janice, the sleeping shelf was small, as she slid another packet into the coffee dispenser. 
a little excitement this morning, Janice said. Kept me on my feet. The assistants on the station are rather sophisticated, but almost cranky compared with what I've worked with before. Suddenly, an alert popped up on screen, and a traditional beep-beep sounded. Izzy flinched. Another message from the ghost? It's for you, Izzy. Probably nothing, just junk, Izzy said, leaning over Janice's shoulder and hiding the notification. Not long after arriving on the station, she had started getting all manner of random messages. I didn't think we got spam up here. Those bastards can find you anywhere, Izzy said, her heart beating faster than usual. She hoped Janice wouldn't feel it. The nurse didn't say anything as she slipped towards the exit. Don't forget your face-to-face, Janice said as she left. Not a chance, Izzy thought, smiling. I prefer my gynaecologist, Izzy said, in reply to Rob's question about her first meeting with Dr. Rutger. She was slowly growing accustomed to the time delay between when she spoke and when she saw Rob's reaction. In this case, his thin eyebrows rising, a confused smile wrinkling his tanned face. On the other hand, the delay afforded her a long time to study his pretty handsome face, the curve of his lips, the dimple, and the clean-shaven skin. She missed that most of all. The men on the station did not spend much time on hygiene, especially shaving. The voice she heard from the speakers was a digitised replica of Rob's warm, easy-going manner of speaking. His words arriving after being cast into space bounced off of a satellite and splattered across the station's receiver. It was only vaguely reminiscent of how he actually sounded, but it still curled her toes, just as it had eleven years ago when they'd met on campus, a planet away. It was the middle of the day for him, and he was using the video conferencing system at the university where he was speaking, drumming up supporters for his run at Governor of California. This election was not supposed to happen for a couple of years, but the recall of the current governor had thrown everything into chaos, especially their relationship. Rob was saying, or had said, she supposed, You did nothing but talk about him before leaving. Izzy hated how he left the leaving dangling there, as if an accusation. But what he said was true. She had talked about Dr. Rutger, probably annoyingly too often, but how could she not? The man had written several of the textbooks she had used during university and beyond. Though she knew she would not be working with him directly, she had hoped to be able to arrange some time one-on-one with him, for things she could learn from him. But her first meeting had been a little disturbing. She tried to explain, He's brilliant, there's no doubt of that, but it's just that... She struggled to find the words. She did not want to insult her idol. After a long silence, Rob said, What? He was assessing you for duty before allowing you to inherit his precious traces, right? He wanted to make sure you wouldn't crack. Obviously you passed. You saved the station. Izzy smiled. She liked it when Rob was proud of her. I didn't save it on my own. And the doctor, well, I guess the psychological assessment went well enough. Like you said, I passed. Dr. Rutger was a robust man, not fat by any stretch. The diet of gels, nut paste and silkworm spread did not encourage obesity, but he had filled his small chamber, looming behind his plastic desk and over the flat strip painted on it. A sleeping cocoon in the corner, a plastic fern bolted to the desktop his only decoration. And then there was the leather haptic suit that made him look like a plush gladiator. The haptic outfit provided the doctor with tensile response to the virtual worlds he explored, cataloguing the memories that he acquired from the station crew. 
It allowed him to physically experience the memories, making his work possible. It was creepy, but only half as creepy as the eye snap. This was a cable composed of thin segments that folded and unfolded as necessary to adjust to any movements the doctor made. His left eye had been removed, and the eye snap entered his brain through the hole. Dr. Rutger did not simply study data. He lived in it. His good eye never met hers. It had remained fixated on her chest, and she was certain that when she left, its gaze had moved down to her ass. At least Janice had warned her about what to expect. And did the inheritance hurt, or anything? By anything, Rob meant. Had it changed her? How many times had they had this conversation on Earth? Her trying to reassure him, he trying to warn her. I'm still me, honey. The doctor just injected a little expertise, a little hands-on experience, all of it pertaining to my work only. I haven't collected any new fetishes. Rob smiled, a worried sort of smile. And she wondered if there were others in the room with him, people who he did not want to associate him with the word fetish, imaginary or otherwise. She blushed a little and chided herself for not having thought of that. During an election, Rob was never alone. And he's taken from you too? She sighed. Nothing's been removed. I only bequeathed a copy of some of my technical knowledge. Rob said, I hate that they're copying you. They say space, it changes you. Rob, of course, still listened to his music on vinyl. I'm still your original Izzy. A beep distracted him, but he managed to smile while glancing down at the mofo he carried. He flicked his wrist, acknowledging the message he had just received. You keeping an eye on the casts? There's been some talk that I'm sympathetic to the separatist movement, just like we worried about. Just like you worried, Izzy thought. She should have done her station work well before the election. They both knew that having her here in the middle of it would make things harder for Rob. But they talked about it, had agreed that it would be okay. I'm sorry, but we discussed this. A lot, she said. His device beeped again. I know, I know, I, I'm just reminding you. Her cheeks flushed. Listen, I've got a call. Anything else you need to talk about? She glanced at the clock. There was over seven minutes left on their precious face-to-face. -face. Station bandwidth was fairly limited, and everyone busy with official duties, so these calls were meted every two weeks or so. Time was precious, but obviously Rob was too busy. She really needed to talk to him about the ghost, and was about to speak when he said, OK then, take care. He disconnected the call, and he disappeared. Good luck, she whispered to the blank screen. I love you. Soft blanket on soft grass. Rob beside her, she snuggling into his warmth. The bright city lights far in the distance, staring up at the stars. What will it be like? Izzy asked. Rob turned to her and she reached out a hand, gently scraping her long nails over his smooth chin. Cold, he said. They say... A loud beeping filled the night air and they both looked around. And then he peeled away, her eyes opening to the quasi-darkness of her sleeping shelf. The dream faded. The flat strip was beeping an emergency notification. Her cocoon was as warm as the dream blanket had been. She wiped sleep from her eyes and stared at the flat strip. She unzipped a little and leaned forward. Assistant, she whispered, 
but her voice was dry and her words struggled to be heard. She cleared her throat and tried again. New message. Critical priority. Oh no, she thought, scrambling out of the sleep cocoon. Had something happened to Rob? She ordered her assistant to display the message. Negative, it said, aware that she was away from keyboard and used voice instead of her preference for text. Messages audio. Play? No. Sender? She slid from the cocoon and braced herself against the wall. Her heart was racing. Isabel Mosh. If there had been a chair in the room, she would have slumped into it. Cold relief flooded her, followed by a rush of icy anger. She had never hit another person in her life, but she clenched her fists and stared at the display. The ghost. The bloody ghost. The first message had shown up three days after Izzy boarded the station. Four more, including this new one, had arrived intermittently since then. All of them had been sent from her own email account. Whoever was doing this had successfully hacked into her station account, and though she kept on changing her password, the hacking, the messages, continued. In a way, she was glad that Rob was not messaging her, at least there was little chance of any surprise embarrassments, because she clearly did not have control over her own account. Play it, she said tensely. She knew she should forward it to the station commander. Obviously, this was a prank, probably from one of the more disgruntled off-worlders. She brought her fingers to her mouth, chewed down on the shattered ruins of her nails. Help me, us. He's not what... I'm not as tough... Each recording was improving in quality, as if the prankster was getting frustrated at Izzy's inability to understand. She could almost decipher this latest message. A woman's voice. There were only seven females on the station. If she could identify the sender, maybe she could talk to them, convince them she was not an earthbound spy or worse, resolve the situation without escalating it. She assigned her assistant to do a voice analysis, and it reported that it would take three hours to complete. Good enough, Izzy thought. She invoked the clock. A couple hours till wake time, there was no way she was going to fall back to sleep. She had a scheduled bequeathal session before her shift started and figured she might as well show up early. There was no real night time on the station. Outside her sleeping shelf, the hall lights were bright. This was the hub of the station. The central orb contained the sleeping shelves, dining hall, exercise rooms and other hygienic necessities. Seven pencil tubes extruded from the main sphere to a different specialised research lab. Over the years, the station had expanded to take over hosting scientific research after the previous stations had been mothballed. Izzy moved down the pencil tube that led to the medical sphere. The waiting room was a cramped hall even when empty of people. Janice chatted with Izzy a bit, but because the chamber was free, they decided to start the procedure early. The memory chamber was a circular room with a metal bench in the centre, the only furnishing. Thick corrugated tubes led from the head of the bench under the floor panels and into Dr. Rutger's office. That office, the door closed now, sat at the opposite end of the chamber. Attached to the bench were a bulky mask and three canisters of the gas that both sent people into a dreaming slumber and opened their synapses for the tracing. Since this was a bequeathal today and not an inheritance, Dr. Rutger would trigger Izzy's memories and trace the relevant ones, adding them to the predecessor archives. Janice helped Izzy onto the bench. One of three nurses, this was the first time that Janice was on duty while Izzy underwent the procedure, because of their working opposite shifts. The nurses did more, of course, than assist Dr. Rutger, 
They also took care of the scrapes and bruises of the crew, checked for infection, monitored stool and urine samples and so on. All that fun stuff that made Izzy especially glad that she worked with code. Code never oozed. The mask descended towards Izzy. It was black, leather, and it fully enclosed her face, sealing tight as Janice adjusted various straps. If it was not for the jasmine-scented oxygen pumping through the tubes and into her mouth, Izzy would die from suffocation. For a few long, familiar seconds, Izzy could see nothing, hear nothing, and then suddenly lights flared around her, bright, blinding lights that made her wince and turn her head from side to side. Bars on either side of her head had been raised into place to make sure she would not hurt herself. Tell me about your day, Isabel, the doctor said, his voice monotone, devoid of character, except for the small squeaks between his words as if each word exhausted his supply of air. She thought of the rogue assistant and how she'd stopped the other assistants from killing themselves. He prompted her to explore the details as he traced her. He said, You took control of the situation. She smiled, thinking of the plastic plant in his office. She had looked at it a couple of times during their profiling sessions. He had said, You know, they'd really prefer that I use a real plant, even tried putting one in here. But I just hate caring for things, watering, pruning and the like. The damn things just grow out of my control. She'd nodded. Do you have any plants, Isabel? She remembered his thin smile as she had answered. Just plastic ones. That tells me so much, he had said, smiling. Think of loyalty, he said now, jarring her back to the present. She thought of her work, of engineering. Rob. Politics slipped reluctantly into her mind. She could not hide her distaste of them. She loved Rob but hated his career. Why was Rutka asking her this? Did he think her a spy like some of the others feared? Did thinking she was a spy make her seem suspicious? She tried thinking of something else, but her mind balked. Spy, spy, spy. The mask tightened around her face. Are you claustrophobic? She shook her head. A hand touched her naked stomach. No, that couldn't be. She was on the memory bench, wearing clothes. Suddenly, her arms were lifted above her neck, and she felt a cold wall against her back. Have you ever been imprisoned? No, she whispered. She thought she heard the echo of her voice. It might have been nothing. Tied up? Are you serious? What was going on? The restraints tightened, and she almost shrieked. No, never. How would you react, you think, to being tied up? The question sent her into spasms of horror, panic welling up, the mask flapping against her lips as each inhale brought it almost fully into her mouth. She could not differentiate reality from what was occurring in her head. Why was the doctor doing this? Can you tolerate pain? Oh, shit. She steeled herself. But no pain came. Instead, the doctor said, Remember your husband. She did. Thinking first of the tears she had refused to shed after Rob had cut short his conversation with her. She cringed, but the doctor probed deeper, and a flood of memories escaped her. For a moment, she could actually feel Rob sliding inside her. Her toes curled and she moaned, her face flushing with embarrassment and maybe more. Suddenly, the lights disappeared, and there was a long, low moan echoing in her head. 
When the moans stopped, so did the hissing of oxygen, and she began to suffocate. As she sucked desperately for air, the leather memory sack slid into her mouth, cold, soft and pliable. She thrashed, but the restraints kept her on the bench. Janice's hands with the mask quickly, undoing the straps easily. She pulled the mask free and Izzy could breathe again. I don't know, but Janice was interrupted as the doctor's voice emanated from the speakers in the ceiling. Ah, computer problems, he explained, sounding a little out of breath. Sorry about that. Still drained, still drawing in deep gulps of air, Izzy managed to ask, You need help? With a computer? No, no, he said quickly. That will not be necessary. I handled it. Fixed it. You may go. I think we've discovered enough for this session. Izzy felt her face flush when she remembered remembering Rob. The doctor must see that sort of thing all the time, right? She hoped he would not think less of her. She considered asking Janice about the things the doctor asked her, the things she felt, but could not bring herself to do that. Just in case. A little over two months later, Izzy was floating beside Janice as they waited for Izzy's assistant to load the voice file. It was end of shift for Janice, and Izzy had half an hour to spare before her own day started. With everything that had happened, Izzy needed to share her nightmare with another to have help identifying the ghost. Though her assistant had already discovered the prankster weeks ago. But it was wrong. It had to be. You look like crap, Janice said. And with me ending a shift looking better than you? Everything okay, honey? The last sentence was said with a lowered, sympathetic tone that Izzy had started really hating three weeks ago. I'm okay. I really need to have you listen to what... what someone's been sending me, pranking me with. Need to know who's doing this. Assistant, play clips. Get us out of here. Stop giving us... Oh, damn. Found... Knows everything. His Isabel. His Isabel. I am... Janice's face whitened as she listened to the collage. Izzy had been certain it was not Janice, and by the other woman's expression that certainty was now without doubt. Janice's fingers trembled, brushing the sides of her uniform. Izzy, it, it's you. Why are you saying these things? Janice was pushing herself away from Izzy, but keeping her eyes fixed to hers. Crap. The assistant had come to the same conclusion. No... They just came from my account. Whoever is doing this is hacking into my system. Izzy knew she was close to tears. Everyone likes you, Izzy. Especially now with what's happened Earthside, nobody wants you off the station. We're all hoping you'll reapply after the year term expires. Earthside. Like Earth was in another universe. Though it might as well have been. Three terse face-to-faces and then finally an official message from Rob's lawyer and a slightly more personal final communique from Rob himself. I stopped missing you, Isabel, I don't know when exactly. I need to focus on my career now, and the posturing of the stations isn't helping. Your being there isn't helping. Don't you cry, Izzy. Keep yourself together. He had, of course, had an affair, too. Normally that would be an election killer, but it had rapidly increased Rob's popularity. I just couldn't relate to her, he said in one interview. I'm here on Earth, living with Earth problems, and, well, she's up there. Izzy closed her eyes and stopped the tears. 
The voice, it sounds like you, honey. Izzy nodded, opening her eyes. It's not, she insisted. Janice nodded. Look, I'm going to grab a bit to eat before I sleep. Nothing like munching on silkies before a bed, huh? You want to keep me company? No, thanks. I'm off to work. Janice rested her hand on Izzy's shoulder for a few seconds and then left. Izzy leaned against the wall. Asking for help had been a mistake. The way Janice had looked at her eyes full of pity of concern disgusted Lizzie. She would repair this herself. Invoking her assistant, she soon had it gutted open and began to tweak several parameters. She granted it full access rights. It would have the same clearance level as she. Such a practice was frowned upon, but she needed it to follow any clues it might find. Then she sent it out with orders to fully cross-reference all accessible personnel files, internet data, station logs, anything and everything. She needed to know who was speaking to her. And what will you do, Izzy thought, if it turns out that it's you? The shift passed slowly. Izzy felt like a tweener her first day with a mofo, waiting and checking every few seconds for a new message. In this case, she was checking for status updates from her assistant. None arrived. As the shift neared ending and just as she was preparing to leave, Alex kicked out from his chair and floated over to her. Listen, he said quietly, you are going to be paged by the commander to go see her. Before you panic, know that all of us here, we want to help you through this thing. This thing? What thing? Izzy kept her temper in check, but barely. Had Janice told the commander about the messages from the ghost? Before he could reply, a notification appeared on her flat strip from the commander. An urgent meeting. Asking for help? Definitely a mistake. You want me to go with you? She stared at him, realising she hadn't yet responded to his first statement. Was his offer genuine? Was it too cynical of her to suspect he was just trying to get laid? Seven females and fifteen men... Her pending divorce had not gone unnoticed. I can manage, she said. Izzy had only seen the commander's office during her face-to-face job interview with Commander Ferguson almost a year ago. She'd never set foot in it. In many ways it was similar to Dr. Rutger's, but with several real plants instead of a singular plastic one. Izzy sat across the desk from the commander. Your divorce, your first rotation on the station, minding an unruly bunch of pre-sentience, these are all very stressful and you're holding up exceptionally well, but we all need help. I'm recommending that you allow Dr. Rutger to have three or four sessions with you. I'm sure it'll help. I don't need a shrink, Izzy said. I know it will be a little uncomfortable as the two of you have been working professionally. I understand you've been reviewing some of his more advanced research? He's a very private man, and I'm encouraged that he's willing to confide in you. Obviously, he respects you and you him. His work with tracings and inheritance and assistant overseer domain-to-peer techniques is amazing. I've been lucky. And you are right, I would feel uncomfortable. She paused. How to express to the commander that she did not want the doctor to think her weak? What if he stopped allowing her to view his research results? Despite what the commander had said... They had spent very little time together, but Izzy always felt renewed when he sent her a new file, a new algorithm. The commander intuited Izzy's fears. He's a very good listener, Isabel, and he's professional. No matter what you say, it won't diminish his opinion of you. 
she ran down a long, dark tunnel. The gravity told her she was back on earth, that heavy slam of foot against wet concrete, the splash of water soaking the hem of her pants. The air, thick, dirty and heavy, and the voices pleading for mercy told her this was a nightmare. Distance and the hollow tunnels separated her from the screaming. She smelled meat sizzling. Her assistant woke her with a gentle buzzing. She opened her eyes to darkness. For no reason she thought of Rob's parting words. I stopped missing you. I never stopped, she whispered. But Rob, she had watched him forget her. Surely it had happened day by day, a little more of her fading away from him. She hadn't known it then, else she would have fought. She sighed, wanting to close her eyes and drift back to sleep. He had told her it would be okay for her to work on the station. They'd reached a decision, together. She closed her eyes, but her thoughts allowed no sleep. Twenty minutes later, she sat in front of Dr. Rutger. Her legs wrapped round the legs of her chair. The plastic fern still dangled in the corner. What had she expected, that it might die? Let me ask you a simple question, the doctor said finally. She almost wondered if he knew who she was, that she was the same person he'd been sharing research with. His voice was flat, and his real eye flitted back and forth, scanning the flat strip on his desk. This was never your dream, was it? What do you mean? She had expected a question about the mysterious messages, perhaps even some leading questions to gull her into admitting that she'd sent them herself, not this. Most earthbound working in the stations have spent their lives dreaming of space. The rest are born here. Both groups share a passion for the long, dark expanse of stars. They revel in the excitement of colonization. Did you, Isabel Mosh, spend your life dreaming of the stars? She felt like she was about to fail a job application, despite the months of work she had already dedicated to the station. It's not like I didn't want to come here. She paused. He paused. Finally, he looked up, a rare moment of eye contact, a thin smile spreading across his face, before he resumed looking down. You don't enjoy talking about yourself. Not really. Well, then, I'll be more direct. Why are you here? The assistance. Maintaining the station requires the most complicated artificial intelligence in the... She paused, about to say world, but realising the understatement in the word she corrected. Universe. I want to be part of that. Ah, the doctor said. Perhaps that is better than the glory hounds who come here seeking excitement. Do you regret your decision now that your husband has left you? She blinked three times, cleared her throat. No. Do you feel it is affecting you? Not my work, she said quickly. No, of course not. Your record is superb, and your insights into some of the more technical aspects of my research show strong insight. But there is more to life than just work. This, coming from the man who slept in his office? She resisted the urge to allow the smallest of grins. I am a little challenged at times, she said. I knew my year in space would put a strain on my marriage, but when we went into it, well, the marriage, that is, we were equals. And we always were, or so I thought. She pinched her lips together, feeling stupid for revealing so much to a stranger. He nodded, urging her to continue as his hands traced patterns across the flat strip. Generally, we did what he wanted, though. Even big things like buying the house he liked or his running for office. 
but I always felt like his equal. We debated these decisions together, but then this huge opportunity presents itself and I convince him that it's good for me, for us. Or I thought I convinced him. The doctor said, and then he uses it as an excuse to divorce you. Yes. And how does that make you feel? <laughs> Isn't that phrase copyrighted or something? He laughed, but kept his eye glued to the flat strip. Finally, sighing, she said, Now I don't think we ever had an equal relationship. I, or what I wanted, was never important to him. Perhaps. Maybe he just changed, Dr. Rutger suggested. People do that. Change. Especially when the situation becomes so different from what they're used to. When the horrible happens, some thrive and others collapse. I haven't collapsed. No, and we won't let you. That's why you're here. Isabel, when did you start sending messages to yourself? Izzy let her mouth hang open a moment, digesting the abrupt change in conversation. I... I never. They're not from me. They are your own voice, though. She sighed. What else should she expect? Maybe it's my voice. I don't know. But I did not record them, did not send them. They just appeared in my inbox. I'm not crazy. Our mind operates along a continuum, a road stretching forever forward, forever backwards. Sometimes we hit, well, potholes along the way. These disrupt our... Whoever is speaking in these messages, she is in pain, distress. That's not me. He had been nodding sympathetically during the previous exchanges, but his hands had always been busy. Now they stopped. He looked up. Pain? How? Whoever was sending it was pretending to be hurt, in danger. Play them. He was looking at her intently now, and with a command invoked his assistant. He asked her to open a tunnel into the secure data terminal so that her assistant could enter. When it arrived, she asked it to play the messages. She sat there watching the thin grin play across Rutger's face as fragments of voice from the mysterious woman played over the speaker. He squirmed in his seat as it ended. I assumed it was a prank, she said. I'll take copies of these and we'll ask around. It does sound like you, but there's a difference, he said. And she thought he might elaborate. His voice was full of emotion now. Did the thought of playing virtual detective excite him? But he never resumed speaking. Okay, thanks, she said. See the nurse on your way out. She'll fill a prescription for you, a relaxant. Izzy walked out. Glancing back to see the doctor staring at her, she clambered away from him. A cold chill ran down her spine as he hastily looked down at his desk. At least she had not been sent back to Earth. It would be hours later before she realised that she no longer thought of Earth as home. They were busy running millions of simulations, breeding an improved life support assistant. Izzy visualised the results and studied them as she tried to determine which strains should be bred next for optimal results. How's it looking, boss? Alex called from across the room. He was examining the same data and knew what her response would be. He was becoming a little too familiar with her, she thought, and she suspected she should put a stop to it. But she knew she wouldn't. Great, we're on the right track, she said. 
and wasn't sure if she meant the strains or their budding relationship. Or her life. Rob was down there living his pointless life on Earth, and she was here in the midst of the most exciting AI research. And almost two months now without the creepy messages. She'd never thanked Dr. Rutger, but he always had a knowing smile when they talked like she owed him a favour. Or vice versa. She pinged her assistant to file her latest observations on the breeding pool. No response. She pinged again. No response. Assistants did not just up and leave, not like husbands, but there was no trace of it anywhere. She asked some of the other assistants and found that her assistant had stopped chattering about an hour and a half ago, which was the equivalent of it having disappeared an hour and a half ago. Hers was a rather vocal AI. She retrieved a backup binary, archived approximately a half hour before the disappearance, and loaded the recollectable into her visualizer. Graphs and charts filled the flat strip. She jumped down to the last few entries. Search completed. Comparison analysis performed. Timestamp abnormality observed. Guess logic. Isabel Marsh activity calendar dates. Infer. All messages sent within 22-hour window after tracing appointments. All messages originate on service 709. All messages ceased May 23, 2180. Therapy appointment May 23, 2180 in Area 404. Area 404 contains Lab 48 Terminal. Lab 48 Terminal operates on Server 709. Decision required. Promising lead 37%. Action. Opening connection to Lab 48 Terminal. Izzy scratched her head. The assistant had entered the terminal to Dr. Rutger's lab, and whatever protective bots the doctor had on his system had deleted it? Damn. Why hadn't she sent a clone? The backup was viable, but re-emergence was always disorienting, and it might be a few hours before her assistant was capable of resuming duty. Izzy watched Alex work, his fingers energetic across the keyboard as she thought of what the doctor's connection to all this might be. How placid the doctor had been until she'd played the messages, and her first appointment when he had checked her out. And now destroying her assistant, what was he hiding? Maybe the doctor was a bit of a pervert. Isolation on the station could excuse that. What else? She recalled the one session when he had asked her personal information and had invoked inappropriate memories. The other women had mentioned similar events, though none really elaborated. No one knew what the doctor needed for his tracing, so they all assumed everything he asked was important. But what if he was constructing more than work-related tracings? For what reason? She thought of the messages, her own voice begging for help. She bit her lip, beginning to become excited— how elaborate could his tracings be? What she inherited were experiences, not facts and data. What if he had compiled thousands or more of these experiences and built a facsimile of a person? How sophisticated would that be? And then, what did the doctor do to them? Torture? Well, what of it? Ever practical, Izzy thought. What did it matter? It was his data. 
Now she knew or thought she knew. It seemed a reasonable explanation, a promising explanation. And after being caught, Rutger had stopped and moved on. His diversion was over. Certainly it was a disgusting activity, but it didn't affect his work or harm the station. There was no reason to report her suspicions. The dead assistant was easily recovered. And to be honest, Izzy was impressed. The uses of this technology, if it did exist, were many. The ultimate assistant, a person. She resurrected her assistant and terminated its search-for-clues routine. Now life could really return to normal, she thought. Or at least, the new normal. The station was attacked four days later. It was not Earth that attacked. Despite the bravado from Earthside, such as talk of limiting trade with the seditious satellite states, a phrase the media picked up rapidly the moment Rob suggested it as part of his election platform, Earth had not launched any military force against them. This attack had emerged from inside the station. Izzy was still half asleep. She had been woken during her sleep shift. The lights were dim in E-module, the station running on emergency reserves. What's wrong? My assistants are panicking, Alex replied. He looked exhausted. His shift had almost been over when the attack had arrived. Was it the service coordinators? They were always on edge, having to deal with humans constantly, wore them down quickly. Which ones? All of them, Izzy. All of them. The station shook, just another in a long series of tremors as the thrusters fired chaotically. She leaned forward and invoked her debugger, snagging sixty-four assistants at a time. Their minds were on display for her, the convergence software showing raw data in addition to the graphs and charts that summarized it. She began opening them up, piecing together the events. An invader had rippled through the system about twenty-three minutes ago. She invoked her assistant, and though it was as rattled as the others, she was able to do a quick modify edit on it. Her assistant calmed. It recovered a tag ID for the invader and she read it, groaning. It was her assistant. Not the current one, but the one Rutger had deleted. That was why the viral descenders had ignored it. It belonged to the system, or once had. Now it was skyrocketing from one end of the system to another, and every time it passed through another assistant's space, they scattered like cockroaches scuttling for the safety of darkness. It was not actually attacking. Its bizarre behavior was simply frightening them. Mental note, Izzy. Breathe that out of them. She sent kill commands into her old assistant, but they never stuck. It was crossing virtual boundaries too fast. Time for an old-fashioned technique, she thought. People forgot that at the end of the day, every simulation resides in hardware. Intangible software was hosted in tangible components. She had her assistant run a probability analysis based on the pattern of the intruder's movement. He identified three likely destinations. Izzy shot up out of her chair and floated to the storage racks. She pulled the power supply from one section and then another. The third was wedged behind the support frame, and as she pulled the plug, her hand caught an uneven corner of the shelf and it tore a long cut along the backside of her hand. Alex floated to her side and told her she was insane, but the way he said it made her smile. He paged medical, and while they waited, Alex tore a bandage from its package and pressed it against her wound. They've calmed down. You got it out of the system. Though you took about thirty other essential assistants with it. What was it? Another assistant, she whispered, staring at the screen. Alex looked over her shoulders. But the others are accounted for. She looked over at him. 
he was still holding the bandage to her arm. Izzy considered telling him, but then Janice entered. She looked harried and had a bandage round her forehead. The nurse nudged Alex aside and started working on Izzy's wound. Alex returned to his station and recovered the assistance that Izzy had purged with her rogue. Emergency lights faded as the primary system flared back to life. I'll power up the microwave again in a couple of minutes, he said. Pull the rogue out of whichever drive it's hiding in and send a static copy to me, Izzy said, and I'll check with the commander before we resume power flow. But when Izzy paged the commander, there was no reply. We've been attacked, haven't we? Janice asked. No, of course not, Izzy said. But her attention was now drawn to her personal message box. She had a new message from the ghost. She was about to open it when she heard the grav boots echoing down the pencil tube. Clear out of here, everyone, Commander Ferguson ordered as she entered. The other two technicians scrambled, but Alex looked like he was about to protest. Izzy waved him away. Only Janice stayed as she was still spraying a cleanser over Izzy's cut. Another disruption. And an attack on Rutger's lab. He almost lost our entire memory collection. Earth already thinks we're packed full of crazy, and stunts like this, well, it certainly looks like someone's trying to prove them right. Izzy had nowhere to move to, but desperately wanted to slide away. Instead, she calmed herself with a deep breath and said, I don't understand better than you what has happened here, but I am investigating. This rogue is a copy of my assistant, one that disappeared into Rutger's system. The commander studied Izzy for a long time, and when she spoke, her voice was cold, but her words uneven, as if thinking on her feet, trying to fit pieces together that were never intended to be merged. Your husband is surfaceide and running with a platform that paints the stations as villains. He's proposed limiting our rights, imposing military overseers and adding outrageous tariffs to our foodstuffs, and now your assistant shuts us down and almost destroys our most valuable data centre? What am I to think, Mosh? She didn't do any... It's okay, Janice, Izzy interrupted. She was an engineer and hated playing games, hated the entire concept of politics, but... Here she was, now needing to defend herself. My loyalty is to my work. I don't care about Earth or the stations. That said, I would never do anything to harm the station, but I fear that, maybe in a rather convoluted manner, I may have. Janice swore under her breath, and the commander's eyes narrowed dangerously. Izzy explained her rationale for believing that Rutger was playing games using virtual clones of the crew. Oh my God! You have to put a stop to this, Janice interrupted. The commander did not even look down at her. She just stared at Izzy. And you're involved? How? I'm not sure, but my assistant went in and disappeared, and then re-emerged. It was searching for clues to the ghost. Obviously, it became trapped in Rutger's system and panicked. That's my responsibility. We have to help them. What he's doing to us, it's, it's sick. Janice said. Izzy replied, It's not us, not really. Once digital, the traces are only subsets of us, not real people. He's not doing anything criminal. Janice looked about to protest, but the commander ordered her to leave. She did so reluctantly. This has to end, she said as she departed. Izzy looked up then and locked eyes with the nurse, sawing the tears welling in them. Ferguson sighed and asked, You do not think he's in the wrong? I didn't say that. I just don't agree that they are real, in the sense that you or I are real. 
I do think there are better uses for his time than tormenting simulations. You were a politician's wife. That is a politically correct way to suggest he's shirking his duties. It's not my place to judge him. I don't want to see his work maligned or halted because of his... issues. And you swear you had nothing to do with this attack? Nothing. Another message came in during the attack, the first since I had my session with Dr. Rutger. We can listen to it. The commander leaned over Izzy's shoulder as the message played. The trace Izzy was breathing heavily, as if having run a distance and was now hiding. I'm going to survive. I'm going to survive, Izzy Mosh. I'm tough as nails, but you have to help us. There's... My grandfather used to tell me that I was tough as nails, Izzy whispered, her face white. The clarity was almost perfect. It was her voice. Her stomach churned like it did when she saw something on the net that bothered her. She looked up and could tell by the way the other woman's eyes twisted and turned in their sockets that she was thinking back to the countless times that she had bequeathed experience and was now wondering what else the doctor had taken. We'll keep this quiet, she said, but I'm going to have the doctor shut this thing down. Damn it, these are tools, not playthings for his amusement. I'll see to this immediately, but first I have to contact the commanders on the other stations. Izzy's eyebrows rose. Technically, the stations had no reason to involve each other in their decisions. Relax, we just consult each other. There's no secret agenda here, no plan to separate. There's just no precedent for this, and the doctor's work affects all the stations. We can't risk alienating him. As the commander was almost out of the door, she turned and asked, Do you think Janice is going to be a problem? Izzy shrugged. She'd already turned back to study the newest message and the remains of her rogue assistant. She seemed upset. Distract her until I can speak with her. Keep her in quarters. Commander left without waiting for a response, and Izzy reluctantly obeyed. Janice was not in the sleeping shelf. Izzy re-entered the hallway quickly. She didn't want Janice stirring the crew up in hatred of the Doctor, or worse, alienating the Doctor from wanting to work more with Izzy. What he was doing was disturbing, but it in no way diminished his brilliance. She found Janice in the medical sphere, standing in front of the door to Rutger's office, a bead of tears collecting by her eyes. When she saw Izzy, she wiped at her face, sending the clusters of tears floating away from her like an armada of warships. He won't let me in, Janice said. Izzy was not good at making other people do things they didn't want to. She knew she couldn't leave Janice here, but it was hard for her to overcome her discomfort, especially because the other woman was crying. She hated that. Tentatively, she reached out, dispersing the fleet of tears, and rested her hand on Janice's shoulder. This is wrong. Janice said. The commander will make him stop. But he needs to be punished for doing this to me. It's sick. He's sick. Izzy shook her head. Let's keep things clear. These are not real people. How do you know that, Izzy? How? The questions he asked me. Janice paused, pressing her lips together tightly as she continued. The things he asked me. He found out about when... When I was little, Izzy. And I know he's using them against me, against her, inside his damn computer. I was terrified. She's terrified. Oh, damn. Izzy's fingers reflexively clutched tighter. Janice was sobbing now and Izzy helped her sit on the bench. She allowed a glance at the closed door and wondered what Rutger was doing in there. Certainly the drama would be fueling his excitement. 
for the first time she began to feel really repulsed. She thought of the experiences he'd triggered from her. He was exploiting them. But he was Dr. Rutger. They are nothing more than assistants, she whispered. He needs to be punished. What if he destroys all the evidence? What if he denies this? What if he isn't made to stop? Shut him down. Shut his system down. Izzy shook her head. Only if we shut the power down to the entire station. And that might destroy the data anyways. Might even kill him if he was wearing his haptic, if he was online. Janice's eyes brightened. Do it. That's ridiculous. We won't be killing anybody. If I could only talk to him, I could explain the situation, make sure he doesn't overreact. She was worried now about the thought of him tampering with the evidence. She was already in a precarious position in regards to continuing to work on the station, and if he could make her out to be the villain in this... Janice said, I could go inside and try. Inside? I can show you how to hook me up. I'll talk to him. Janice reached for the memory mask, but Izzy pulled her arm away. I don't think you're in the best frame of mind to do that. Janice looked up at her. I have to. No, Izzy said. She felt that she had a stronger understanding of the doctor, and though she thought it more the commander's duty than hers, she volunteered. I'll do it. Janice nodded, smiling, and leaned over, hugging Izzy. A few minutes later, Izzy was on the bench, the mask covering her face. The air rushed in, the jasmine scent faint, barely present. No sleep this time, she'd just finished that thought when she landed on a hard floor. She didn't feel the impact, her knees sliding across stone, but her mind still made her stand quickly, convinced her to wince. Her body tingled, almost numb, just the slightest trace of feeling. Her feet were bare, and she felt that the floor ought to be cold, so she shivered. She wore her lab trousers and jersey. Dark fluid flowed thickly through a channel carved into the floor to her right. Every four metres, a horror-vid-style fluorescent tube flickered. Izzy had never enjoyed horror-vids or games. This place looked like the former and felt like the latter. She tentatively moved forward. The hallway ended but split to either side. She walked left. Echoing murmurs drifted towards her and she quickened her pace, desperate to make contact, not to be alone. Five minutes later, the long, boring hallway that had seemed destined to continue forever was finally marred by irregularly spaced doors along both lengths. These thick wooden doors had long, swooping handles with big lever buttons that Izzy's hand could barely depress. Struggling, she finally pulled the first door open. Before her was the commander's office. The stark lighting of the room almost blinded eyes that had grown accustomed to the darkness of the dim corridors. She stood at the threshold, straddling two very different realities. The room was empty, but as she paused there, thinking, she heard a muffled sob. This room was stretched out, making it longer than the real one. The trace of Commander Ferguson was huddled under her desk. Izzy looked over, placing her hands on the guest side of the desk. The commander kept her head down, her body heaving with her muffled sobs. Her hair was matted and torn out in several places. Her uniform was rags, clinging to her. When the commander looked up, Izzy pushed away from the desk and walked backwards, startled and frightened by the haunted blue eyes that had grazed her with their gaze. Run, Marsh, run, he's coming for you. 
The trace continued to babble, and Izzy turned, re-entering the hall of doors. She stopped there and calmed herself. If the doctor was coming, that's what she needed, right? To talk to him. She wasn't like that poor trace of the commander, programmed into insanity for the doctor's amusement. She was Izzy. He would have no control over her. She could wait. There was no need to open any other doors. But she did. She never crossed their thresholds, though, just peered into worlds both real and imagined. Plains of grass, too luxurious to be real, few such locations existed on Earth any longer. Other station chambers, hotel rooms, little snippets of Rutger's life. Most of the traces were of the crew, but there were others, probably workers from the other stations or persons from Rutger's past. And then there was Janice, or a little girl that Izzy thought was the trace of the nurse. She was standing at the end of the hall. How long she'd been there, Izzy didn't know. But it was the sixth or seventh door before Izzy noticed her. She had long black hair and a violet little girl dress stitched to her leggings. Proper little off-wilder girls did not let their dresses float up. Izzy waved hello, and the little girl nodded, her serious dark eyes full of seething anger. She turned, walking away. Hey, wait up, Izzy said, following the child. They walked through several long, meandering halls, becoming thoroughly lost, before Izzy finally caught up to the girl. They stopped in a cul-de-sac. The end was submerged in darkness, the light here flickering so quickly that it was almost a strobe. She's here, Trace Janice said. Suddenly, two blue eyes appeared in the darkness. Izzy watched the other details emerge, a drawn, haggard face, a scrawny, emaciated body. This trace trembled like a freighter pilot who knows that his ship is going to collide with another and who also knows that no action he performs will turn it away in time. But then a slow hope crept into the eyes and the trace stood. Janice turned and walked away and Izzy watched her until the girl disappeared into the halls. Finally, reluctantly, she turned back. What, Izzy thought, do you say to your other self, to your false self? Hi. They stood silently, studying each other. It was like staring into a horrible freak show mirror. The trace had long claw marks along the side of her stomach, as if she'd been clutched tightly. I waited, the trace said, her voice so similar to Izzy's, but different, as if aged, not by time, but by experience. And when I freed my assistant, I hoped... The assistant, Izzy said. The trace had recoded it. A sense of misplaced pride swelled in Izzy and she sought for clarification. My assistant, your... Our assistant, the trace said, her eyes widening, her jaw setting firmer. Our assistant. You sent him to me and it damn well destroyed him. But it was me who stitched him back together, me who sent him out of here. What was left of him. The entering scattered his mind, and I had little to work with, but I needed you to hear me, no matter what. No matter what? You almost destroyed the station. The trace smiled, and it was like no smile Izzy had ever seen in a mirror. Good. You needed to help, but you weren't listening. Now you are. And if the station had been destroyed, well, that would have been the end, too. But not one undesired. Because of the doctor? The trace visibly recoiled. I always fight, always escape, but he keeps finding me. 
So I'm smart. I know how the systems are made, the hardware that runs them, all this knowledge that you and I have. I use it better than you. I smuggle messages out. And then one day the network disappears. Bye-bye messages. After that, it's just the hiding. Izzy felt a moment of guilt. It was because of her complaints that the network had been shut down and then this, this crazy tracer's only way to contact her had been severed. What had it taken for the trace to survive in here? Strength. Determination. For a dizzying moment, Izzy felt another tingle of pride as she admired this aspect of herself she'd never realised. Maybe she was as tough as her grandfather had always said. Do you... The trace hissed her into silence, her index finger rising, pressing against her pale lips. Her head bobbed like a bird, scouting left then right. Isabel, little Isabel. They both tensed as they heard the whisper ripple loudly through the corridors. When the trace started to tremble, it steadied itself against the wall. Izzy had never been scared of anything, but the trace, this almost her, was very frightened. And maybe that scared Izzy too, even if just a little. Rutger broke people, hammering them against the depravity of his constructed reality to see them crack and how. Isabel. Closer now. He's found me, the trace said, staring at Izzy, her lips curling in anger. You're not really her, are you? You're just another trace sent to track me down. He's tricked me. No, I'm the real me. Whatever you are, stay away from me. And the trace ran down the corridor, exiting the cul-de-sac. Izzy followed, but the trace was out of sight, and then the trace screamed. Ahead stood Rutger, his back to her. He seemed larger, as if living in the station had compressed him, but in here he was free to be his own true self. He was well built, his torso naked and muscular, legs covered by plastic shell pants and feet ensconced in dark, polished combat boots. He had the trace pressed against the wall. He turned his head as Izzy approached. Oh, shit. Rutger's face was a twisted confusion of mouths and eyes, an ever-changing, mind-numbing monstrosity. His eyes squinted, examining her. Two little traces... His whispers slipped out of his mouth through rows of fangs. That's impossible. I don't need to. She's just a... The trace began, but Rutger snapped her neck with a quick twist. He tossed her body down the hall. Izzy screamed, walking backwards, away. Rutger leapt, twisted around and landed in front of her. She sucked in her breath, ripping her gaze from the corpse to meet his. The commander is on her way. You've been ordered to stop this game. No one wants... How is it that there are two Isabels in my world? He clutched her, two massive hands pulling her off her feet and close to him. The sense of claustrophobic panic almost caused Izzy to lose control, to fall into the doctor's twisted game. She composed herself, reminding herself that this was not reality, that the dead Izzy on the cold stone was simply a small part of her and a copy at that. The real Izzy was safe. The doctor held her with one hand, while long claws sprouted from the other. She tried squirming away, but he tightened his grip, pressed the claws against her, ribboning her clothing as he drew his hand down her length. Real or not, she did not want any more of this. 
My assistant almost destroyed your system. That was an accident. She paused, but noticed his claw had stopped moving that he now watched her, so she quickly resumed. But because of this, I had to tell the commander I knew what you were doing. In here. His grip loosened, and she freed herself, landing on the stone, breathing deeply and patting at her side. Light tracings of blood dotted her palm. You are the real Isabel Mosh? She nodded, and by his posture he might have been embarrassed. But then he smiled, and Izzy knew her non-virtual bladder, the one that sloshed around her insides with all those other wet, dirty organs, had voided itself. You're using the memory chamber? She nodded. Clever. Not as immersive as my haptic suit, I sense. Everything I touch, feeling it as I would in the non-digital world. I feel pain, I feel pleasure. The mask you wear allows none of that. Most of what you experience will experience. It happens only in your mind, but the mind is powerful. Izzy looked at him and then slowly backed away. Where moments ago his hands were empty, they now held a spear. There's no need to threaten me. The commander is merely going to request that you stop these games. I doubt you have anything to worry about in regards to your career. You are an intelligent engineer, but a misguided judge of character, Isabel. He thrust the spear through her chest. For a long, painful moment she was attached to the doctor. Blood oozed from her chest, covering her hands as she struggled to pull the spear free. Her struggles ended shortly, her mind unable to compel her limbs to action as it started to collapse in on itself. Rutger dropped the spear, and Izzy fell to the ground. The doctor knelt and pressed his face close to hers. You are dying, he said. And she thought he might have been slightly surprised, slightly pleased and slightly frightened. And then she felt the strangest sensation, as if her body was being slowly shredded, ribbons of her spooling away, and as she watched, sure enough, those ribbons of her virtual self snake walked away from her and slithered into the tracer's corpse. Thousands of folding ribbons stitched themselves together, reconstituting the trace. Izzy's centre of view changed as the transformation completed, and she saw through the tracer's eye saw the trace reach for the discarded spear and lift it, saw the spear tip rise, saw it penetrate the kneeling doctor's neck. Izzy smiled broadly and Alex squeezed her hand. They both looked up at the sign. Alex said, Two hundred and eighty-two days. You've done it. Beaten the record. We, she said simply disentangling her hand from his so she could continue working. The other technicians looked up at the sign, smiling a moment before resuming their duties. Izzy felt great. She leaned her head on Alex's chest. They worked the same shift now, slept in the same shelf. Life was good. She accepted the jasmine, the smell always clinging to her now, accepted that Alex changed a little every few days, learning new things and forgetting others as if he lived another life elsewhere, as if his personality branched and merged at irregular intervals. All the crew were like that. Izzy could live with that. Staring out at space, she thought of the lost opportunities down on that globe of earth and water, thought of the million opportunities now available here 
and further out, in the lands of the twinkling stars, other stations, other planets. A beep. She had a new assistant, and he was notifying her that he had finished his latest task. He was very thorough, very intelligent, and she was learning a lot from him. Izzy inhaled the jasmine deeply. She would live this illusion they had created for her, and pretend that she did not know. Maybe one day she might even forget the truth, or this illusion might become a new reality where everyone ended up when they died. She had an eternity to find out. In the meantime, there were challenges and loving and living. No regrets. Rob was right. Space changed you. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Brent. Brent, thank you so much for that. Hey, fantastic, sir. Thank you. And Nicola, what can I say? Ever the professional. It was just beautiful narration. Thank you so much. So that is the very last of Starship Sova's 2014 run. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed them all. Do you know what I mean? I hope you will join us in the new year, 2015, for a whole more load of fantastic stories, articles, and interviews. I want to just take out a little couple of minutes to say thank you to everyone, and honestly, thank you so much who supported Starships over over 2014. You kind of, it's like a rock and roller coaster sometimes. Drives us mad, to be quite honest. It wears us out. But thank you for supporting when, you know, keeping me going and keeping me afloat. You know, it's been, it's been one sometimes crappy year for starships over in district of wonders do you know what i mean the, just lost larry and it was just the worst thing that would happen do you know what i mean then we'll have to kind of close two shows down as well so we haven't had a kind of you know but it's still been good do you know what i mean and i kind of still think about larry you know most little days you know i'm kind of especially just like photographs you know what i mean it's just like you know you have your phone and i have all photographs on phones and, and he's there do you know what i mean and it's just nice sometimes to see him so, you know, a big thoughts of those who aren't there now with we. You know, that's a kind of, you didn't realise, you know, I didn't realise when we started kind of Starships over. These are the th- things you kind of come up against as well. I didn't think that, you know what I mean? Yes, I come up against the bloody, you're hitting the brick wall with money and that. But you don't think you're going to lose some of your best friends you've made, you know what I mean? So it's it's been a, a bit of a tough year for, you know, quite a few of So... Let's all just hang in there, stick together, stick with Starship Sova. And, you know, we'll, we'll get through hopefully another year. It'll be lovely to see you on the, the front end of 2014. You know, you've all got your new fancy little iPhones there and your fancy Androids, man. Come over, you know what I mean? Get get a little Android app or a, use the actual, the Apple one that's on there and keep, you know, subscribe to Starship Sova. Just out of curiosity, I use Pocket Cast if you're on the Android system there, if you're interested in what I use to listen to podcasts and everything like that. So, yes, and I'd like to say I want to take a big thank you to everyone that supported Starship Sova in 2014, money wise. You know what I mean? Because we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the kindness of you out there. Do you know what I mean? It's as simple as that. Do you know what I mean? So, big thank you. And especially over this last month, I've had some nice little donations, like little Christmas presents popping in there. So, you know what I mean? I've, it's just sometimes I wish I could just like, you know, shake your hand, give you a hug, because it means, honestly, it means so much to us. I couldn't do it now. Do you know what I mean? I'm in a position where we we cannot, you know what I mean? We would solely rely in, on the generosity of everyone out there, and we do it, you know, we get by, and it's lovely. Thank you so much. 
So have, you know, a fantastic time over the new year. You know, enjoy it, welcome it in. Let's see what 2015 brings for her. Let's just hope it is a fantastic time for all of her. My thoughts go out to everyone, have a fantastic time. You know what I mean? It's just, it's lovely to know that you're out there and we've got something going here and it's special. I've been doing it since 2006. Just means so much to us to know you're out there listening to what I do and what we do as a community. You know, thank you so much. Have a fantastic round off for 2014 and I'll see you in 2015. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with it? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Integrity unscathed. Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.